All righty. Welcome to the second Logical Belief Ministries uh, Google Hangout. Uh, this is the first, or actually the second open discussion that we've had. <laughs> Seems like we have these every time the Bible-thumping wingnut doesn't have one. So uh, all uh, and everyone are welcome uh, to join in. It's open. There's no specific topic. Uh, we can talk about the Reason Rally um, in D.C. We can talk about uh, really anything. So uh, anyone that is interested, um, uh, you are welcome to join in on the Hangout. Uh, any atheists out there, uh, you're welcome. Uh, any other Christians, uh, join in, and um, let's just have uh, an hour or two uh, just having fun and just talking about uh, whatever, whatever the topic is. So I already have uh, Andy, um, Andrew, um, who has actually joined uh, me on the podcast before. And uh, he is in the Hangout right now, so I'm just going to go ahead and make sure that you are, looks like you're in the, you're in. I don't have to present you, so I think you're all set. So go ahead, Andy. Did you have anything you want to start off with? Yeah, so first thing is, uh, you know, on your podcast today, you mentioned that there was, I'm going to collapse the wave function on you. Okay. <laughs> the one person who gave you the, uh, the, the podcast review was yours truly. <laughs> oh, that was you. Okay. <laughs> there you go. I didn't know who that I didn't know who that was. It was ACL that, that was, or something. Yeah, that was me and I want the book. So oh, okay. <laughs> it's actually it's a great it, I, I recommend it to anybody. Have have you ever done much uh, studying and reading on presuppositionalism yet? Oh sure. Yeah. Um yeah. You know, I've definitely, I'm familiar with the arguments and all that. Um, you know, Have the you arguments. Read Bonson? Have you read Bonson? Parts. I haven't like picked up his book and just read it through. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <clears throat> what I like about Lyell's book is it was really, I, I'd actually listened to, um, I'm trying to remember what order this was in. Actually, I think I heard Lyell's version of presuppositionalism before I ever heard Seiton Bergenkate. And uh, then when Cy came out with his, uh, man, this is going back, oh, wow, I would say four years ago, probably, uh, maybe four to five years ago, um, I was first familiar with Jason Lyell, and then I um, encountered Seiton Bergenkate stuff on uh, on on YouTube and on the internet, and then I uh, got his how to answer the fool. Have you ever watched that? Yeah, I think I have. I've seen a bunch of his YouTube videos. Um, cause he's a physicist and like an astronomer. Uh, Saiton Birdgate. No, he's just, no, 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 no. Jason Lyle. Oh yeah. Jason Lyle. Yeah. He's yeah, yeah. 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 And, um, and, and so I've watched, are you talking about Jason Lyle's stuff or size stuff? Well, I was, I was talking about size, but yes, I've watched, almost everything Lyell has. I think I've watched about everything that he has. Yeah. So I'm feel, you know, somewhat familiar with him. I've watched, um, you know, he's got videos that where he goes through a lot of stuff about physics, which I find interesting. Yeah. And, um, and then I've seen him get into the precept stuff where he kind of, his description of it, I think he's really good at breaking it down for more of a lay person. Yeah. Um, the problem of course is, is if you get somebody who knows what they're talking about, um, you, you got to have more depth than that to really counter them. 
Um, so it's a good primer, but you, you've got to really understand the argument well to be effective against an atheist to really corner them. I mean, I've uh, and and I agree to that to a point. I mean, I, I think it's a good primer into uh, presuppositionalism. I think, though, any Christian just simply well equipped with just knowing his Bible um, and just standing on the that the God has spoken and uh, there is truth and give me your foundation for truth. Um, and if you bring presuppositionalism just down to even that level, um, I think you can equip a granny, uh, a faithful grandmother that attends your church to deal with some, some of the most sophisticated people um, as long as they just have the understanding that the unbeliever, the unbelieving world doesn't have a foundation for truth. And while they'll challenge Christianity, they're not really ever e- expecting a, a counter challenge. Well, how do you know what is true? What is truth? And that an unbelieving worldview collapses on that question, even what is truth? It just collapses. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so while a maybe a sophisticated philosopher or, you know, could, could maybe use language that might confuse, you know, somebody that's not astute in some of the, the language that philosophers use. Um, just in a day-to-day conversation, you know, normal language with, with anyone, anyone who just holds to that God has spoken, he has revealed truth, and we can know things to be certain because God, the creator of the universe, who is omniscient, has spoken things to us in such a way that we can be certain about them. Uh, it, you can deal with any worldview, even, uh, you know, I actually, because of presuppositionalism, you know, there was at one point there would have been some people I would have said, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know if I ever would want to talk with them. You know, I, I don't know how I could engage their worldview. And once you understand presuppositionalism and understand that I can stand on what God has spoken, there's just not, there's not, there's really honestly, and this is not, this is not a thing of, uh, of pride is just a gift from God is that there's no, there's no worldview and there's no, there's nobody out there that I'm afraid of. You understand what I'm saying? Like, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. It just, it just becomes, I, I, I actually look at people now um, <clears throat> from an unbelieving worldview and I, and I, I'm saddened by their position of arbitrariness and their, their complete, uh, honestly, their worldview if you keep taking it to its logical conclusion will ultimately collapse in nihilism unless they believe God has spoken. And that's really all that's left. Let me ask you a question here. I was thinking about this. Let me run this by you. Um, it's related to this. And I, and this is just kind of interesting. I don't really, I've been thinking about this quite a bit and this is pretty raw. So give me some latitude here, but are you familiar with, um, in math, there's something called the uh, the complex plane, an imaginary number, square root of negative one. Yeah, I'm I'm familiar with the square root of negative one. I'm not uh, in complex and imaginary numbers, but I'm not the first thing that you said, complex plane. You said, yeah. So I'm not familiar with that. Okay, so in math, um, you can every number can have either a real component. This is going to get technical. 
but bear with me. Um, can have a real component. It can have an imaginary component. Okay. Um, so a number could be like, you know, one plus one I, where I is the square yeah, root that's of negative, the square one. Root of negative one. Yeah. Right. And you can draw that in a plane. So imagine the, the y-axis being um, mm -hmm. the imaginary component and the x-axis being the real component. You follow me? Yeah, I've actually used uh, I in, uh, in, in, in math before, so I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with it. So you can plot any number in that plane, right? So you yeah. could, so, so could that would be at the position 1-1. One, one. And to me, the atheistic worldview, and I've been thinking about this a lot, is when you learn about the complex plane in math, you start with uh, every number, you know, when you're starting to build up your mathematical knowledge, you start with every number is real, right? You don't even worry about the imaginary, the imaginary component's always zero, right? And that's equivalent to just looking at everything in one dimension, right? Yeah. And you can kind of think about it then as soon as you add that imaginary component, you can continue to look at everything just in one dimension, but you're missing what's going on in that other dimension, right? I don't know if the visualization's hitting you, but you can kind of kind of think of, like if you think of your hand as the plane you're and you just put it flat to the earth and you're looking at it, all you see is one dimension, right? And then when you flip it, you can see two dimensions. And the atheistic worldview is kind of like, denying the imaginary plane or imaginary component. It's exactly one half of a worldview. It, is this analogy? Are you tracking me here? Or am I making no sense? <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm trying, to, trying to think what you're saying. I mean, using I, you can actually produce real numbers. Uh, right. It's an analogy. Actually, it's an analogy. Yeah. It, what I'm trying to say is, is the worldview Holding that worldview is like denying the imaginary component. You're just always staring at a one-dimensional space. And I was thinking about this. It's very similar to um, our belief about the, the in Lutheranism, the law, where we talk about the first table being in the vertical and the second table being in the horizontal. And it kind of ties in nicely with that because we believe the unbeliever can make progress in the second table, you know, they could, they could be kind to their neighbor, they could honor their father and mother, but they have no prayer, no chance of, of ever meeting or doing anything in the first table. And so I was thinking about how all these things tie together, kind of, is that they're always stuck in this one-dimensional space with their worldview, where they only see things in one dimension, and they can never shift and turn it so that they can see the whole picture. I don't know if I'm making any sense at all, but it's something that's stuck in my mind for like two weeks. <laughs> well, I, you know, now that you say that, um, I would maybe compare it more to the uh, to transcendentals. Uh, maybe compare I to transcendentals. So, in other words, the atheist will account. Well, well, he can't account for it, but he will admit that there is a material universe. Um. He, he will admit that there's such a thing as matter, um, but he will say that that's all there is. The, the universe is just material, that which extends into space, and that's it. There's nothing else. And then he denies transcendentals. Um, and transcendentals uh, would be, I think, more equivalent to what you're talking about. They cannot account for them um, at all.
So in other words, things like um, like love. Love is a transcendental. I can't. It's not made up. It's not part of the materialistic universe. Justice. Um, the laws of logic are transcendentals. Um, they they cannot. So ultimately, they end up denying them because their worldview can't account for it. So I think that would kind of fit into kind of what you're saying there, is that the I factor, which w actually works, uh, we can we can produce real numbers with using the square root of negative one, um, and it's actually really it's tr it it really works even though we call it imaginary number it actually works within mathematics, and in the same way. Uh, the atheist cannot account for transcendentals that he uses every day. He can't function without transcendentals. Even mathematics would fall into the into the realm of transcendentals. Um, yeah. And yeah, so, I, just, I think does that maybe kind of uh, yeah, yeah. I, transcendentals definitely fit in there because they're they're. It's like they're denying. Go back to my uh, the vertical and horizontal. It's like they're always stuck in that horizontal, one-dimensional... Their worldview is exactly one half of a worldview, and it doesn't show you the whole picture. That's what I'm trying to illustrate. It's not a... It's an analogy, you know what I'm saying? It, it's, yeah. It's, it's just an analogy. It's a way to describe their worldview in a very mathematical... An, analogous in, in a mathematical sense, although it's not really mathematical at all. It's just the concept is there. Um, that's all. Yeah. I, I the 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 thing that I would even go further though, um, Dave. I think David Call uh, joined in uh, for a second there. Uh, you can join back in, David. Uh, sorry, uh, your your mic was making a bunch of noise there for a moment, but uh, join back in, David. Um, is uh, I'm trying to remember where my thoughts were going on this. Oh yeah, the the atheist, however, the atheistic worldview, while they cannot account for transcendentals. They honestly they can't account for the material universe, which they affirm either. Uh, they they can't account for the real numbers either. <laughs> uh, that that's just as much they, they don't realize that that is just as much a problem for them as transcendentals. So I wanted to ask you a different question. I don't want to just abruptly change topics, though. It's up to you. No, it's all right. Anything's open tonight. So I was thinking about um, when we were in the after show with with Andrew Rappaport, he was, we were talking about the law and, um, he, you know, I was arguing that the, you know, I was arguing for a threefold division of the law as, you know, and when I looked this stuff up later, it, you know, the threefold division is, was around since the reformation. I don't know if Luther in particular was the one who, put it together, who's the first theologian to, to coin it or not. I, I'm imagining it predates him. But I was affirming that the moral law is summed up in the Ten Commandments and that the Ten Commandments are have the three uses that we always talk about, which is, um, you know, curbing sin, uh, a mirror to, to know that you're sinful, and then a guide in, in in Lutheran thought, the guide would be um, ways to love your neighbor, and he took seemed to take exception with that. I, do you remember this conversation? 
Yeah, no, I remember it. Um, and I and I never actually got to hear your thoughts on either his position or my position. And the other thing I thought was odd, and I know Andrew Rappaport isn't here to defend himself, but he said that um, he said that he saw many uses to the law. And I said, well, I know of three. And I said, can you tell me the uses? And he proceeded to tell me the three that I just said, but I didn't hear him add any more uses to it. Um, And when I've looked this up, Luther basically started with, call it two and a half uses. The third use, you're familiar with what I'm saying when I say three uses, right? Yeah. Calvin really fleshed out three uses of the law. And I'm kind of confused as to what... Where is an additional use? And I and I was kind of curious what your thoughts were, if you see more than three uses, less than three uses, or or whatever. Well, I, I'd like to jump back before we even get to that is the threefold division of the law. Now, and and well, and I can maybe ask him personally. I don't know for sure if this is his position, but I think he might hold. Well, he's a dispensationalist. That's true. So I guess he doesn't necessarily hold a new covenant theology. But some dispensationalists would acknowledge this. So I'm kind of, uh, it's kind of interesting to me that uh, I was listening when he was, you and him were talking about the threefold division of the law. And I've noticed that he's challenged that in the past. And I think uh, Tim and Len might do. the moral and the ceremonial. Um, and I don't think you can really make sense of what the Apostle Paul says um, about the law. Um, you can't really make sense of Hebrews. You can't really make sense of of Paul in Romans, where he's saying he upholds the law in Romans 3, and was it 31, I think. And and then you also have, in you know, in Hebrews, where... Um, uh, and then also you have Colossians where uh, he canceled the ordinances which were against us, uh, which which that is the law that condemns us also. But I don't think you can make sense without putting a threefold division. Now, if, if somebody is going to ask the question, um, you know, where in the Bible does it lay out this threefold division? Well, the Bible doesn't specifically lay it out anywhere, but the Bible doesn't specifically lay out the Trinity either. Um, but we can definitely prove it from Scripture. And this is something I think I want to do a podcast on at some point. Is I think I think the Bible is fairly clear on on that threefold division. Um, and uh, I think one way of looking at it is Paul in Romans chapter two, where he tells us that the that um, we find it actually here, Romans chapter two. Um, uh, what verse is here? Oh yes, in verse fifteen, he's speaking of the Gentiles, and he says in verse fifteen, it says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And then you have uh, Galatians. Let's see here, three ten which says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Um, whoever does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. 
Um, so we have these works of the law, which are written on the hearts of unbelievers. Now, I would argue that that this is not in reference to things like the ceremonial law. In other words, it's not written upon Gentiles' hearts not to wear mixed threads or hey, to not eat shellfish. Hey, Jason, let me add this real too quick. There's an Old Testament law, I don't remember exactly what it is, and maybe you remember because you're good at that. There not there an Old Testament law that says you must build a railing on a two-story house? And it's just for safety, basically, that they didn't want somebody to fall out, you know, fall off the roof. You yeah, know what I'm talking about now. How yeah, is that absolutely. written on somebody's heart? You know. <laughs> yeah, well, and a lot of those those laws in the Old Testament were not were not, um, in other words, specific. Like, in other words, the only place you would ever put a railing would be just around a roof. It was the the general equity of the law is what was to be applied. So, in other words, if you had any sort of structure that um, that you know could endanger a human being, you were to put things in to safeguard it. I, I think an equivalency to that today would be like you know if you have a pool, you should have if there's children around, you should have a fence, you know, um, preventing little children from falling into it. That would be the general equity of that law. It's not you know specifically referring to a roof, and. Um, and at that time, people, you know, lived on their roofs. Uh, they they ate up there because it's cool, you know, and they uh, sat around there in the evenings. And so to have that fence around was a barrier of protection. And so human life, because they're image bearers of God, is valuable. You know, we should do what we can to protect life reasonably. And I think that's the general equity of that law. But, yeah, that's that's another example of that. Is that written upon their heart? And that's the that's the question I have for those hold there's no distinction. So how do you explain Paul in Romans chapter two if you don't put any distinction within the law? Yeah, and I I remember I gotta look this verse up. I don't remember what it was, but I think it even specifies the height. I mean it was like it was like a building code. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I don't think that, that makes sense. So, I mean, I would agree with you, and that's actually something I need to do. I've actually never done a study on that to see historically, um, you know, were the Reformers the first one to note this threefold distinction? Um, the uh, London uh, Baptist Confession of Faith, um, I actually need to look that up. It's been a while. I've read it several times, but I'm pretty sure it it outlines the threefold distinction. I think the Westminster Confession does also. Um, and I and I don't know if uh, <coughs> what's the Augsburg Confession or whatever. Yeah, that's what I hold um, to is Augsburg. Th- does Confession. that have Does that have the threefold distinction outlined in it? I can. I've got my uh, Book of Concord here, but it'll take me like you know ten minutes to try to find it. <laughs> you familiar with the Book of Concord? You ever heard of it? I've heard of it. You're going to have to refresh my memory on that. It's not ringing. It's not. It's got uh, Luther's catechism in it. Um, okay. The the formula Concord, the Augsburg Confession, uh, small called articles, the primacy of the Pope in there, a couple other things. It's the central theological document of the of the Lutheran Church. I think actually I have your. Is this your catechism right here? 
Yes. The small one. There's also a large one. Yeah. I don't know if this would have it in here. I have to I have to look. Um, I doubt it. It it has all the that is a really good reference, by the way, that's put out by my church body in particular. And it's good because it's got a lot of questions and answers in it. But um yeah, going back to our conversation with uh, Andrew is that um <clears throat> I think you run into some some big issues when it comes to um you know how how should a Christian live his life, and I think that uh, um, I think he's going to have some issues there uh, when it comes to Christian piety, and uh, you know I I I would be uh, you probably call me a modern day Puritan, <laughs> um, so you know all all the 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 reformers and the Puritans that you know I look up to held this threefold distinction and understood the differences and looked at God's law as a guide for us when it comes to how, how ought we to live as believers, as redeemed, regenerate, justified believers. How do we work out that sanctification in our life? And I think that, you know, we look at God's law, we look at his word as a guide to us on how we ought to live. And he, and Andrew, when we, I think uh, you had asked him the question, or maybe I did later too, is, uh, you know, what what is the Christian bound to and how he ought to live his life? And he's, well, the nature of God. Okay. Well, <laughs> here's the thing. Um, I believe even Andrew and and most Christians today would say that God's moral law is a reflection of his nature, right? And so... Um, if if God's moral law is a reflection of his nature and his nature is a standard, which I would agree that his nature is the standard for us. Um, my question is, is how, how do you, how do you uh, define what, what, what in God's nature is the standard for how, you know, we should live our lives as Christians and to just say, it's just God's nature, I think is to just, um, you know, to just to just assume a standard that you're not giving any more definition to. Yeah, that was the problem. Not a problem, but my thing with it was that it. I don't know if you would. Okay, let me ask you this flatly: Do you believe that the moral law is encapsulated in the Decalogue? That is the moral law, uh, synonymous. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do believe that. I believe yeah. that you can probably. Uh, trace almost uh, all moral obligations for human beings back to one of the Ten Commandments. Okay, so you and I are on this exactly the same page here, and he seemed to really not want to affirm that. I, I could, I don't want to misrepresent him, but he seemed very uneasy about that. And then when I said, "Well, I can, I can probably take any sin you can think of and get it to fall into one of them," and he goes, "Well, you can just make anything do that," which is true. But, you know, there's a reason why Jesus gave the law as love, you know, the, the, the two tables. He summarized the two tables, love God, love your neighbor. And, and it's because it's simple. And I don't know. Go ahead. Uh, no, no, go ahead. Uh, what I, yeah, what, yeah, what I was going to say is, is um, and that's where I was is struggling, too, is like if you open it up to saying it's what, what's ever in God's nature, um, 
I, I don't think he was implying this, but here's my concern is that um, you, you can let yourself get open to all sorts of man-made rules that you assert yeah. that are in God's nature, which maybe aren't like, for example, I don't know where you stand on um, using uh, or drinking alcohol, but for example, I would say it is not sinful to drink alcohol or say dancing. Um, it's not sinful to dance. Um, whereas very legalistic people will say, well, that's, that's sin, you know? And, um, that's, those are the verses where I say, okay, show me in the Decalogue where it says these things, you know? Um, so I do think there's clearly things that are in and out when you consider the Decalogue, our sins are not, and not sins. And then you don't want to fall into that situation where, where Jesus was very clear that you do not follow man-made rules where, you know, he ran, had his ran, run in with the Pharisees regarding the elders, you know, the tradition of the elders and things like ceremonial hand washing and so forth and um, work on the Sabbath and so forth. And, and Jesus was clear, do not follow man-made laws, only follow the written word. Uh, you're only bound by the written word. You follow yeah. me? Yeah, I agree with that. And I think if you just appeal to the moral standard as God's nature, but then you don't go further than defining it any anywhere beyond that, you know, I would think that most dispensationalists would hold that, you know, we ought to have laws in our land, right? So so what what standard should we use? Should we use what's called natural law? You know, and 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 who sets that? Who sets what is natural law? You know, what are you appealing to? Um and I think that we have to appeal to um, to God's word for what that law is. Um, and I think there's difficulty also in saying that, well, there, you know, all of the Old Testament law is abrogated, and now it's just what is defined in the New Testament. Well, you run into some issues because there's 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 certain things that you cannot are are never laid out or defined in the New Testament. Which is why I don't know if you were there when I asked him if uh, cross dressing was something that uh, <laughs> that a Christian should not do. Now I have no problem going to the Old Testament and showing the text in Deuteronomy that says that a man should not wear women's clothes and women should not wear men's clothes. You know, I, I've I've no problem doing that, but I don't know how a dispensationalist who completely abrogates the old the uh, the Old Testament law would have any sort of, uh, and, and even you could even take something like bestiality and they'll say, oh, well, that's just a ridiculous example. Okay, well, tell me where the New Testament condemns that. Now, I have no problem with going to, what is it, Deuteronomy 18 and uh, and going into that text uh, and and demonstrating that, that this is God's uh, moral standard um, and uh, has always been. And I don't believe the New Testament uh, obligations we have are any different than the Old Testament obligations. God has been the same. When it comes to your thing on alcohol, yeah, I don't. I, I think it's. Uh, you, I, I don't know if you read the article I wrote a while ago on my podcast, um, or not my podcast, but my blog, um, entitled "Is It a Sin for a Christian to Drink?" It was a response to an article um, that was posted on. Uh, charisma news or something, I think. Um, yeah, the Bible does not 
lay out uh, alcoholic. I mean, if, if you're going to define uh, drinking an alcoholic beverage as being a sin, then you make Jesus a sinner. Um, it's very clear that Jesus drank um, wine. There's no doubt about it. And so the Bible very specifically condemns drunkenness. So we as Christians ought to be very careful with that. But to condemn um, alcoholic drinking, I think, is is a form of legalism because the Bible does not lay it out at all. And in fact, um, it uh, talks about um, drinking. No, I completely agree, by the way. I think you and I are like, from our, this, I think we're in complete agreement. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, historically the Reformed and Lutheran view on this is pretty similar. Now, let me ask you this about the uses of the law. You know, I asked him to present the uses, and, you know, and I really hate attacking Andrew Rappaport here because he's not here to defend himself. No, I, and I, really, <laughs> I, I really appreciate Andrew. But he's, yeah, I really like Andrew. I don't, I don't want him to think I'm attacking him, you know. No, no and, and I'm not either. And I think we could maybe just use the term dispensational because he just holds to traditional dispensationalism. So we could just say the traditional dispensational view. Yeah. I'm just not so when he said, he said he saw many uses. And when I heard him and I asked him, please describe what the many uses are. I really didn't hear him articulate anything that were outside of the original three uses that Calvin, well, I don't know how you would say it historically. What I, I looked it up somewhat. It looks like Luther really had three uses and then Calvin really flushed out those uses more. I don't know. You know this stuff better than I do. Um, I know Calvin was big on three uses, right? Three uses and only three uses. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, when I've read his institutes, I'm not. I'm not sure, but I can. I can read you here. I mean, this is the uh, the London Baptist Confession, which is uh, the Westminster has this too. Um, it says, uh, yeah, definitely here. It says in section three of uh, chapter nineteen on the law of God says, besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial law, also containing. Uh, several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, his actions, suffering, and benefits. Um, and then he also, it says, and to them he also gave sundry judicial laws, which is uh, the civil law. So they affirm here the moral and then um, the obligate or what how the uses of the law. Uh, I'm trying to find here. No, it has it. Give me a moment here. <clears throat> okay, here we go. No, oh, no, that's not it. Um, as a, as a reformed person, I would say that the law makes clear our condemnation. Um, there's uh, it's actually in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, the the law makes clear our condemnation. Uh, the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, and the law shows us our duty as believers. Okay, so we would, would define it. We would be in pretty much perfect agreement. I would say that the first use is is curbing 
um, sin in the world. And it just doesn't apply to the believer. It applies to the unbeliever too. Um, and that government is the big um, thing that falls under it. And then of course uh, the, the, the law is used to examine ourselves again. We examine ourselves against the law to realize that we are sinful. So it gives us that picture. And then the third use would be um, sanctification or a guide or basically teaching you how you're supposed to go about loving God and loving your neighbor. That's how I would define it. Now, I'm not sure what he meant when he said many uses beyond those three. Those are the only three I can think of or I've ever seen at all, you know. Yeah, I think that we would uh, be together on that. Uh, I'm trying to actually find that um, that uh, word defines. I mean, basically, yeah, it's it's the the three distinctions. I mean, it uh, uh, makes clear our condemnation. Um, uh, is a schoolmaster, um, which is really a quote from Galatians, is our is the pedagogue, which is the Greek term there. Um, is a, our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ and uh, shows our duty uh, that God require the duty that God requires of man. Um, and also we would see the two table distinction within the Ten Commandments. It's the first the first uh, four uh, being uh, man's duty to God and then the second table being man's uh, duty to neighbor. Now, the one thing where I would tend to go off the, um, I would begin to differ with probably some of my Puritan heritage is I do not look at the fourth commandment as obligatory for the Christian life today. And the reason I hold to that is because I believe the Sabbath keeping was a sign of the mosaic covenant circumcision is not the sign of the mosaic covenant circumcision is a sign of the abrahamic covenant um sabbath keeping is the sign of the covenant and i think it's laid out very clear in exodus 31 and it says and the lord said to moses you are to speak to the people of israel and say above all you shall keep my sabbath for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that i the lord sanctify you you shall keep the sabbath because it is holy for you Uh, jumping down to verse 16 observing the sabbath throughout your generation as a covenant forever so notice it is a covenant sign and in hebrews chapter 8 the last verse of that chapter it's verse 13 it tells us that that particular covenant and speaking of the new covenant he makes the first one obsolete that's speaking of the mosaic covenant which is becoming obsolete and growing old and ready to vanish away so i don't think we are under obligation to the sign of the mosaic covenant any more than we are under the obligation of circumcision as a sign of the abrahamic covenant yeah i would agree um like for example luther says in reference Okay, so that's the fourth commandment. We would call that the third commandment. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. It says here, Luther says, what does this mean? It says we should fear and love God, that we should not despise his word in preaching of the same, but deem it holy and gladly hear it and learn it. So in other words, the way he interprets that for the Christian today is not 
not the traditional Jewish Sabbath day of rest, but he sees it as a form or part of worship. Um, so in other words, you should worship, you should seek to hear the word, you should seek to receive the sacraments, um, you shouldn't cut yourself off from the body of Christ, that sort of thing. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I would, uh, I think I think we're pretty well aligned on that. I'm going to actually, I, I see there's some viewers online. We had a few there. I'm going to put the link below the video so you guys are welcome to join if you guys want to join. I did not put the link below the video earlier, so. So when he was talking about many uses, I, I think I would just need him to clarify what beyond those three is he referring to. I, it, I'm not sure if you, you know from a general dispensational point of view. Um, no, I was kind of surprised by that. I didn't, I didn't know what he meant by that. Okay. Yeah. And, and you know me, I'm not covenant theology or uh, dispensational. I'm law gospel theology. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we would, we would hold to law gospel too. We just uh, um, think that God, I mean, I believe God has worked through covenants and um, the new covenant was promised. Uh, there was an old covenant. Um, and I, I believe it was a covenant of works. Uh, it was not a covenant that brought salvation. The Mosaic covenant did not bring salvation, which would distinguish me a little bit from traditional Reformed covenant theology, which would say that it was just a different administration of the covenant of grace. Um, so I, I wouldn't. I would be more 1689 federalism, which is baptismic or a Baptist view of covenant theology. Um, let me. What is it? Where can I save this? Let's see here. So let me ask you a different question altogether. Um, I've been thinking about this. Um, we had a back and forth on Facebook about, um, well, you let me know whether you're willing to talk about this. I don't want to force you to talk about something you're not willing to talk about. But um, we were talking about the Eucharist and the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. No, I'm fine. We can talk about that. Um, I'm, you know, one thing I'd like to hear you, I, I mean, I, in our Facebook exchange, I did go ahead and read everything you sent me and I just kind of like to hear it from your, you know, from you just, just so I can, under, you know, cause it's, it's one thing to read something. It's another thing to hear it from somebody directly. I'd kind of like to hear from you, your position on it, especially with respect to, you know, you, you said you affirmed Calvin's view on it. And I'd love to hear kind of in your own words, your own thoughts about how you view it. Um, I, I just kind of be curious about that. Yeah, the way that I view it is um, I believe there is an aspect where Zwingli was right, that it is a memorial, but I think it goes beyond that. Um, I, I believe that believers by faith um, uh, take part spiritually uh, in the flesh and blood of Christ. Now, I don't believe that the the bread and the wine is trans uh, uh, substantiated into uh, the actual flesh and blood of Christ. I, I don't believe that. Um, uh, I, I don't believe that the flesh and blood of Christ is available to unbelievers that would partake of the Lord's Supper. I believe it brings them under condemnation if they do so but I do not believe that they take part in the flesh and blood of Christ. Um, 
uh, believers by faith, uh, those who um, have been given the gift of faith from God, have been regenerated, and um, have faith in Christ in taking part of communion, um, are partaking of the body of Christ because they were crucified with Christ. They were um, they were part of his death, burial, and resurrection. So, so I think that there's there's two parts. In John chapter 6, where Jesus talks about, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part of me. And he who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood, um, he will raise on the last day. Um, I believe there's two aspects to that. There is, I, I think, I don't, I, I think the the most uh, the main thing that Jesus was was uh, pointing out there was the same thing Paul talked about in Romans chapter. Uh, let me find it here. Romans uh, chapter six, verse six. It says, "For we know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we are no longer enslaved to sin." Uh, for one who has died has been set free. For now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. So I believe that we took part of the debt. We, we were, um, uh, he took upon our sins in his body upon the tree. Um, that's in uh, Peter. And so um, those of us who are believers that were foreknown and foreloved by God, uh, brought to the grace of salvation, partook in Jesus' um, flesh and blood sacrifice um, because he was our substitute. He died in our place. Um, and so I think that that is probably the primary thing that Jesus is speaking of in John 6. But I believe there's also an aspect of it of which he was speaking of the um, and I wouldn't call it a sacrament, but I would call it an ordinance of communion, where we, by faith, uh, take part in the flesh and blood of Christ, but not in a transubstantiated way, but spiritually we are united with him uh, through um, the grace of the ordinance of uh, communion. So I think that is where my position is on it. I would say that I'm probably uh, closer to Calvin than I am Zwingli on that, whereas Zwingli held it as only a memorial of what Christ had done. Um, I believe there is a spiritual aspect um, by those who, by faith, come to the Lord's Supper. So I have a, a battery of questions for you, um, okay. but I don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> I really want to probe this a little bit further if it's all right with you. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, let's start with the, let's go way back to the beginning here. Do you, what is, I, this is one thing I don't understand about reformed people. What is the aversion? Okay. You do not believe in any sacraments. Is that correct? There's no such thing as a sacrament. Well, I mean, we would hold that baptism. Uh, I mean, <coughs> we define define how you, as a Lutheran, uh, define sacrament first. Okay, that, that's know. an easy one. So the way we would define it is: there's a physical element. So we believe in 
two sacraments, baptism and the Eucharist or Lord's Supper. There's a physical element in both, right? Then we believe that there's God's word involved. And what we believe happens is something mysterious but uh, but real, where God's word, and the way they talk about this in, in the confessions and so forth, attaches itself to the physical element in a real sense. It, it, you can almost think as it a physical attachment, but it, it, you can think of it, it attaches itself to the physical element. So there, the physical element gets, um, there's no other real word for it. And, uh, and when that happens, you're partaking or involving something that's a sacrament because you have a physical element and God's word working together towards it for means means for something means for God to work means for the Holy Spirit to work. Um, so that, that's how I would define it. Does, does that make sense to you or does that sound really foreign? No, I mean the, I think the the difference would be in, and while we somewhat have an aversion is, uh, I mean, and, and, uh, many reformed people, um, would refer to the Lord's Supper and baptism as being sacraments. The The difference is, is where, where we tend to go like this from it, is that we do not look at the sacraments in the same way as the Roman Catholic Church does. And they believe that there is, there is grace infused in anyone who is, um, that takes part of Roman Catholic sacraments that they are infused grace through the process of being within that sacerdotal system. Grace is infused within them that enables them to, um, to be, to do that, which is pleasing to God. And then therefore they then can merit condign merit from God, uh, where then God owes them um, merit because of, uh, the good works that they accomplished through the infused grace that they achieved through the sacraments. So in that way, um, we as Reformed people completely reject that. Yeah, we, we don't would reject that too, just so you know. Yeah. We, and, wouldn't, and, we wouldn't believe that that—go ahead, keep going. Yeah, and so when, when somebody says sacrament, we kind of go, okay, well, it just depends on how you're defining it. Because if— if the, the these sacraments, if baptism and the Lord's Supper, um, in and of themselves, independent of the person actually having faith in Christ, in and of themselves, uh, are able to to infuse grace into an individual because this sacrament has some sort of power in and of itself, we don't agree with that. We um, only agree that it is a it is a means of grace uh, that God provides only for His people and those who uh, partake in baptism and the Lord's Supper through faith um, actually are the ones who have the benefits of those. But I, I do not believe the sacraments infuse grace into us; uh, they are simply a part of our sanctification. Uh, they are um, one of the ways that we demonstrate obedience to God because he has saved us, not that we 
do these things in order so that we can be saved and that we can merit the favor of God um, if we if we engage in these things. So that that's where that's why we're careful. Yeah, I get that. So where we would agree and disagree, where we would disagree is that in baptism, for example, we do believe that one can be regenerated through baptism, which I know you don't agree with, but that's our position. And I think the the, the text there we would go to is, um, is it Titus 3.15? Does that sound right? Mm, I don't think so. Um let me let me look up that text. That doesn't sound right. I mean, Titus three fifteen is the last verse in the book. So it doesn't um, all who send are with me send greetings to you. Um, Whoops! Okay, time, it's it's uh, Titus. Uh, hold on. A lot of times, baptismal regeneration they go to Acts chapter two. But... No, there's a verse in Titus. Um, that speaks to through the uh, washing of regeneration. Yes, yes. Which verse is that? Uh, let me see here. And when we talked about this last time, I I, I neglected to take you there, which I should have. Titus uh, three five. Okay, you were just off one. Yeah, I was off by one. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't think this is referring to baptism. This is actual regeneration, the new birth, the washing yeah. of regeneration. The, um, we we would affirm that that washing is a is, we would say that washing is a a washing. A physical washing would include a physical washing with basically would say that washing is baptism. Okay. I think where this ends up collapsing though, and this, <laughs> and, <that's> just, <laughs> and this is where, uh, and, and I, and I actually, this would be one thing that I would have to very vehemently disagree. And that's because uh, I believe that uh, John chapter three makes it very clear that regeneration is a work of the Holy spirit uh, that he moves wherever he wills, and it's not done upon demand uh, in any sort of way. So the question I would have then, uh, and I think I may have asked you this before, but uh, I'm not sure, is um, is so everyone who is baptized as a Lutheran is then regenerated? Uh, yeah, and I would say... So they would be saved? <sighs> That's a really tough question, Jason. That it, it's because Jesus I don't says, know. I don't know. I, yeah, I know that there's promises associated with baptism, and uh, I would assert that baptism isn't just something that happens. Um, that God isn't working through it. Um, I, I think God does work through it. Is it like you push a button? Where you just baptize somebody and it's automatic? That's a tough question. I don't know, but there, there's promises associated with it. So I know that's not the answer you want to hear, but I'm talking. I'm not giving you a good answer, am I? <laughs> do, do, you, do you believe people are regenerated outside of baptism? Sure. Yes, absolutely. You, you can either be regenerated through, because baptism, 
this is where it gets back to my sacramental definition, right? So it's God's word working with the physical element. So God's word can work on its own to, to regenerate a person. He could also use God's word through baptism to regenerate a person. The, the God's word piece cannot be, um, has to be present. You know, faith only comes through hearing. Okay. So we believe that through the sacraments, God's, God's word is present. So is just hearing it. So either method would be fine. Is that, you you see my position? I I think, see, see, I, I, I don't believe now, would you, do you believe that people can be regenerated multiple times in their life? That's, that's, that's a tough one. Um, I don't want to say the wrong thing because I think people can deliberately cut themselves off from the means of, of grace. Um, and they can reject it. I think you could, that, that it is possible to, it is possible to be regenerated. Let me give you an example. Say somebody is, uh, regenerated, they're, they're, they're a Christian, they affirm their faith, and they have some tragedy that happens to them that causes them a deep uh, crisis of faith, and they go apostate for a while. Um, then they come back, either through some re- for some reason, and we see this, I mean, you've, we've seen examples of this. Now, the question is, is were they regenerated the first time? Did they reject? Did they regenerate a second time? It, it's it's the I don't think scripture's very clear on those. Now you would disagree with me, but I I just don't see scriptures being so crystal clear on that. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, let me see if uh, scripture can answer that question for you. Well, the first one I would go to would be Second Corinthians uh, five seventeen, and uh, there it says. Uh, it says, therefore, if anyone, well, the first question before I would read this is, would you say that somebody who is regenerated is a new creation and is in Christ? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in verse 17 of, uh, second Corinthians five seventeen, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And he says, all this is from God. So this is a monergistic act of God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And uh, it keeps on going. Uh, It says, gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ, uh, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Uh, And then it goes on uh, in verse 21, one of my favorite verses, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we see that everyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So would it be your position that the old can return? And they can unbecome a new creation. You're really going to try to pin me here, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that if, unless you did not, unless you affirm the perseverance of the saints of God, who He has regenerated and who has He has redeemed, uh, would end up being 
kind of, well, actually, I think it is kind of an attack on the new creation. It's saying that God creates something. He makes it all new. But that that work of Christ, um, that he is the author and he's the perfecter of our faith, and that uh, his sacrifice, Hebrews 10, 14, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Um, it says that, well, maybe his sacrifice hasn't perfected them for all time. Maybe he can lose some of those who have been given to him by the Father. I'm going to John 6. Maybe the new creation is not all that new of a creation. Maybe it can become an old creation again. Um, so I think there's a lot of difficulty there. And I think that First uh, John 2, 19 would really answer, I think, your question about if somebody does go out from the faith, does that mean that they were not regenerated before? And I think John just completely answers this question for us very clearly in 1 John 2.19. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So he is affirming the perseverance of the saints of God. If they had actually been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were, uh, that they all are not of us. Yeah, so, but then then you have kind of the what I described, kind of the prodigal the son type situation where um, the person can come back, and that's that's the piece that I struggle with. Um, let me ask you this though. Um, going back to your, uh, your Lord's, the Lord's Supper thing. So do you, so you do, this is the part that you and I are going to disagree on, I think. Do you believe that Christ's body and blood, let's take the cow, what I thought when I, you sent me the link, what I thought I understood it to be, that Christ's body and blood spiritually unite with the bread and wine? Do you affirm that or not affirm that? Yeah, spiritually, yeah. Okay, spiritually. Yeah. So when that happens, when does that happen upon what, well, we in Lutheran Church, we call that consecration of the elements. Would you affirm that that's when that happens? When does, when does, the, when does Christ's body and blood spiritually, and you're going to have to tell me exactly what that means spiritually, because I would affirm it's more than spiritual. It's physical. Uh, when does that happen? Um, I believe it happens when a believer partakes in the Lord's Supper in faith. Okay, so it's, it's not when, when they, special they, words are said or anything like that. Okay, so it's when you ingest the elements. Yeah, it's when uh, when we partake it in faith, we are partaking of the flesh and blood of Christ spiritually. Yeah, we are spiritually so, being united with Him. So getting technical here, and I told you I was going to hit you yeah. with some battery of questions. <laughs> <laughs> Three seconds before you take it. So you, when, we, when you say partake, you mean physically it hits your mouth. That's when it happens. I told you I was going to get technical. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't think Scripture is clear about that. I think that um, I, I don't know if I can give you a temporal time uh, on when that happens. I believe when we partake in the Lord's Supper by faith, um, we are partaking spiritually of the sacrifice of Christ. So it doesn't have, so you, you're, you're not, okay. So if it 10 minutes before it's, it's not been united, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I can necessarily. You can't pin yeah. it. I mean, because I don't believe that it 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 uh, substantively in the physical realm changed into anything else. I mean, I I eat bread and I eat wine, but I'm partaking in the flesh and blood of Christ, uh, uh, in a spiritual sense. And can you can you ask me to define what I mean by the spiritual sense? Um, yeah. Not really. I don't know that I that I can define the substance of spiritual. Um, we we for example say that uh, that God is spirit. We so therefore we affirm that. But do we understand what the and there's an aspect of our being that is spiritual? Do I do I understand what that substance and that essence is? And I don't know that really anyone can answer that. Um, <coughs> so. Okay, that's good. Um, now let me ask you this then. Is is the Lord's Supper objective or subjective? Is it the Lord's Supper because you want it to be? Or is it the Lord's Supper because it's something outside of you that makes it that? See what I'm asking? Well, no, it's something that God works and God does. So, okay, so, so it's outside of you. Well, yeah, that would be outside of me. Yeah. Okay. But God works the faith in us, so there is a aspect of which we experience it. But um, sure, it would be something that God does. So, for someone who's not a believer, um, is there just not believing make it not the Lord's Supper? For them, it's it's not. Other than it, it brings condemnation upon them. So there is some element of subjectivity. You see where I'm going with this, right? Well, I mean, it depends on back to your temporal thing. Is it something that is experienced by the believer uh, that that it is something that God objectively works? So, in other words, are you saying that, like, okay, so God objectively does it if an unbeliever? Uh, as you're putting it into your mouth, he reached over and he yanked it out of your mouth. He would then experience the. Uh, <laughs> I mean, is is that kind of what you're uh, you're you're getting to? <laughs> well, what what I'm getting to. Okay, so in Lutheran faith, we believe it's an objective thing, completely objective, meaning that it's not because I believe it or you believe it or the pastor even believes it. It's because that's what happens. Um, God makes it happen, and it's it's outside of us. It's completely outside of us. And it happens, this physical attachment of his body and blood to the bread and wine happens when the words are consecrated. Um, so when the words of institution are spoken by the pastor, the bread and wine attach to Christ's body and blood, and, he, and there's real presence there. Therefore, it's outside of me, it's outside of you, it's outside of the pastor. Then one that's given to me, um, that's given to me because I'm a believer. It's given to me, and, and I gain benefit from it. Now, <laughs> you ask me, well, what happens if an unbeliever takes it? Mm -hmm. And I would say they are playing in very, very dangerous territory. Now, Scripture doesn't specifically say, other than that they are condemned and they're I think they're uh, eating and drinking condemnation upon. Yes. Yeah. So how God deals with that, uh, I, it's not something I would even want to say, you know, other than what scripture says right there, because it could be something really, really bad. He does now, in other words, a punishment or a wrath that he, 
pours out big time on the person who does this. Now, the way I would put it analogy-wise, and you might not like this analogy, but it's good, it's the same way um, for an unbeliever to take the Lord's Supper is the same as me or you going and trying to like play with the Ouija board or get involved with the occult or going to do some divination or a seance or something. Scripture forbids it, and it says, do not do this. You are playing with very, very dangerous things. Absolutely do not do it. So I'd say it's doing, it's that in reverse. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that type of danger that Scripture warns us against in dabbling in things we shouldn't, when the unbeliever dabbles in these things that they shouldn't, they're putting themselves in danger, except they're being they're putting themselves in danger of the almighty God rather than uh, you follow the analogy there. It's kind of the, the thing. No, no, I understand what you're saying. Now you do know the question I'm going to follow you up with though, right? No, go ahead. <laughs> I, think, I think I did this in our chat. So, okay. um, so you would affirm that it objectively becomes the flesh and blood of Christ and even unbelievers are t- partaking of the flesh and blood of Christ. Yes. In John 6, uh, 54, it says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So is the unbeliever um, abiding in Christ? Is he? Does he have eternal life, and is he raised up on the last day by having taken part of this? No, because... Um, if, and the reason why is because you got to look at all the scripture that talks about what, what salvation is about. Um, salvation is through faith alone, which the unbeliever doesn't have. Mm-hmm. So clearly there, I mean, you can't, uh, I'm not trying to be offensive, Jason. I'm just saying mm-hmm. you can't rip that verse out of context. Jesus is, is that's one part of a grander scheme of, of salvation. So, um, and what he was talking about there is is what happens for the believer. The believer eats his blood and drinks his, and, or I'm sorry, eats his body, drinks his blood. Now, let me give you an example where I know that um, for that that's not a prerequisite for salvation. We I don't think you or I would affirm that that having to partake in the Lord's Supper is needed for salvation because, for example, in my church we don't give communion to people until they have um, gone through training, uh, have made a profession of faith in front of the church, et cetera, et cetera. And it doesn't mean they're not saved. It just means that they haven't gone through all the instruction, that they really understand everything that's that they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. Like we don't give it to my five-year-old daughter because although she has faith or has professed faith, she doesn't know all the intricacies of the Lutheran confessions. Make sense? <laughs> yeah, but and, I, I don't. Uh, I don't want to come back to the text, though. I mean, you would you would say that? Um, well, I, I believe this text is not saying that this is necessary for salvation. It doesn't say that at all. It just says that Jesus is speaking as a response to them because he says that he is the bread of life uh, that comes down from heaven, in contrast to uh, the manna that was given by their fathers in the wilderness. And he and his this bread that he gives is eternal life. It does not give temporal life like manna did, but it gives eternal life. And the Jews did not like, is this guy going to give us, this man going to actually give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said, whoever feeds on my flesh, so whoever has eternal life. 
So it, it doesn't just say uh, the believer who feeds on my flesh. It just says whoever feeds on my flesh has eternal life. Okay, I see where you're going now. So you understand where I'm going with that? Because the yeah. text, if, you, if I'm going through the text and, and going with what, it, what it's talking about here, I don't, I don't know that I'm, I would be taking it out of context. It's, it's not saying, um, now I believe these are believers, and I believe that whoever actually does take part in the flesh and blood of Christ has eternal life because all of those are believers. And if you go through all of John 6, it's about, I mean, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. This is talking of this whole chapter is just it's one of my just one of my favorite verses or chapters in the book of John is that that salvation is a free gift of the grace of God and that this chapter is so powerful that in verse 39 this is the will of him who sent me that I will lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day uh, verse 37 all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out and then he ends uh, all of this about God's sovereignty and salvation and that God is the one who draws and everyone that God draws is, is uh, raised up on the last day. And then he goes that everyone, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day using the same thing again, that he has been repeatedly saying. So if you take the flow of the chapter, you're, you're talking about the ones who are drawn, the ones who are called are the ones raised up, the ones who are drawn, the ones who are called, or the ones who take part of eating his flesh in his blood um, and uh, take part in his death, burial, and resurrection. Um, so I, I just see this all uh, as believers. I, I see the whole chapter being about uh, those who have been granted the gift of faith, and uh, that's what the entire chapter is about. Yeah, yeah, I I I I don't disagree with you. The area that I think the only area we disagree is is whoever really mean whoever, or does it really mean? Is that statement a little bit more conditional? It's like um, you guys in the word all. You know, is all always mean all? <laughs> well, it, it does actually. It always means all. And here's the thing: all always means either all without distinction or all without exception. And here's the thing: there's many other places in Scripture where the Arminian or um, and I don't and I think you would probably more hold to the the, the monergistic view. Yeah, we're but, I'm, we're strict monergists. Um, is that um is that there's many other places where there's not uh, any argument uh, that the Arminian will affirm that, um, that the text means all without distinction. But when you go to the ones where they have to insist that it's all without exception, there they're going to say that it is um, it, it has to be um, all without distinction. For example, in John 8, 2, if you take anyone to this text, they're going to say, well, that's that's not all without exception. That's just all without distinction. Even the Armenian would agree with this. Um, in John chapter 8. I knew I pressed the button when I said... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I want to actually deal with this because I think this is very important. It says, 
it says in John chapter 8, uh, beginning at verse 1, it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now, when it says all the people, does this mean every single Jew in that area came out to see him? Or would you say it's all without distinction? Right. I... I uh... <laughs> I really, I really didn't want to get into the whole thing about the word. <laughs> I'm just uh, pointing out that you're. I, I was just pointing out that when yeah. you say whoever, there's a broad sense, and then there's. I don't know the exact. What is the exact words you use when you're well, using? Actually, it's kind of got to be. You, I think you get where I'm going with that. Yeah. I, well, I know your position. <laughs> Well, that that gets because I've had to address this argument over and over. So, but usually people will go to John three sixteen and they'll say it's whosoever, whosoever, and I'm like, well, that depends. I agree with whosoever too. Whosoever does believe uh, will not perish but have eternal life. But that's the question. You you're assuming uh, that man's free will is the one who determines the whosoever. Um, whosoever. Yeah, so. You know. So I guess I would affirm that in that verse, the word whoever is not strictly in the, and I don't know what the word in Greek is. I mean, we'd have to look at the Greek and, and all that. And I know your Greek's not bad, but um, I don't, my Greek's like terrible. So. Well, I'm just uh, learning. I, I'm not uh, <laughs> any sort of scholar. But, I'd be yeah. Studying it, so. But um. I think you know where I'm going with that, where, you know, is whoever mean whoever, whoever, you know, just focusing on that word in the, in the same, in the same way that, you know, were, were they focusing on the word all, um, or, or is well, there I, something else going on there, you know? And I think I can take John three sixteen in the exact same way. I take John eight, uh, or John six fifty three. in John three sixteen. I say, whosoever believes. So every single person that believes is the one who has eternal life. Um, and then I say the exact same thing with John 6, uh, 53, that whoever feeds, whoever is the one feeding on my flesh, has eternal life. See okay, the, so let me, let me ask you this then. When it says whoever believes, surely you don't mean just belief. You mean trust in the promises of of Jesus, because, of course, uh, belief can be an intellectual belief. It could be. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be. You have to. When we talk about belief in God, we're always talking about trusting in God's promises. Faith has something it has to cling on to. It clings on to the promises, right? So, um, otherwise, you end up with just a mere intellectual belief. In you know, you follow what I'm saying, right? No, 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 I, I, absolutely. And, not, I, and I think we're every, I don't want to split hairs. I'm just yeah. saying, you know. uh, every, every place in Scripture, John three thirty six, you know, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. I actually, be, you know, I, I believe that that whoever believes. Now, I understand the difference between fiducia and essentia. Uh, essentia is simply an intellectual scent, and a fiducia is a trust from the heart. Um, actually, it looks like. Uh, uh, Vincent joined in. Let me uh, show and broadcast here. Uh, I present to everyone. 
So I think uh, I just added Vincent to the broadcast here. Um, so I, that's the difference. I, I believe when the Bible speaks of uh, those who have faith and those who believe are the ones who are saved, it's speaking of, and you take this from Scripture, about how Scripture defines, and even like James defines faith, uh, uh, a, a true faith, a fiducia versus an essentia. For example, James says that even the demons believe, yet they tremble. Well, they, don't, they, they only have an assent. They, they know that God exists. They know that God is one. But they don't have a saving faith. They don't have a, a heartfelt faith, which is a gift from God. So that, that would be the difference. So every place the Bible says, those who believe are saved and those who believe have eternal life, um, is all referring to uh, a fiducia and not a sentia. Sure. So, okay. Uh, that that kind of clears it up for me on on that your position. Yeah. I think I understand it better. Uh, you know. Yeah. So I don't know, uh, Vincent. Do you have? Have you? I don't know if you've been uh, listening. Do you have any thoughts on this? All I heard was John three sixteen. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you hear that a lot. That's a new one. Never heard that one. Before. Never heard that one before. Yeah. 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 Very uncommon chapter. I can't believe you would turn to that one in yeah. this type of conversation about God's sovereignty. So why would you do this? Yeah. Actually, that's yeah. We weren't actually talking about that. We were talking about the Lord's Supper. <coughs> actually, what is your view on the Lord's Supper? I don't know if you're familiar with with Calvin's view versus Zwingli's view on the Lord's Supper and, and Luther's view of consubstantiation versus transubstantiation. Uh, do you have a position on that? I do not. Yeah. Uh, Zwingli would have held more to that uh, the Lord's Supper was a memorial, uh, and that's all it was. It was, a, it was a remembrance of what Christ did. Uh, Calvin would have held more <coughs> to... That, that those uh, who partook in faith... Like there's a presence? That there is a spiritual presence. Uh, that would oh, be okay. Calvin's no, no, no. position. And the Lutheran position, and I'll, maybe I'll let uh, um, Andy kind of fill in the Lutheran position, then obviously transubstantiation, which is the, um, which is the uh, Catholic position, that it actually is trans... You know, uh, it actually yeah. becomes the flesh and blood mm -hmm. of Christ. I got you now. Which, it's, it's interesting, uh, Zwingli said transubstantiation was the main problem with the Roman Catholic Mass. And Calvin and Luther actually disagreed with Zwingli on that. And they actually said, uh, both Luther and Calvin agreed on this, that the issue with the Roman Catholic Mass wasn't as much transubstantiation. It was that the Roman Catholic Church said it was a propitiatory sacrifice. And they said that was the root problem with the Lord's Supper, versus Zwingli said that it was transubstantiation was the root problem. Yeah, I would agree with that. So let me ask you this, and now I'm going to sound like a Roman Catholic, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> well, you Lutherans, you guys are rubbing up against the, you, know, you guys smell a little popish to us, I have to say. So let me ask you this. My original question to you was, do you have a church father, and, and I'll explain why, um, do you have any early sources 
that point to your position so that uh, that your position is not just a 300 or I'm sorry 500 year old theological position but rather you believe that your position goes all the way back to the apostles in the early church or do you believe that um, that explain how you put your how you put your theological position in the context of the church the, the way the church is historically believed about the Eucharist you see what I'm asking? Yeah, I, I, I'm just going to have to simply plead ignorance. I haven't done really a study on, you know, the early patristic, you know, father's position, uh, particularly on the Lord's Supper. I know that they often referred to the Lord's Supper as the flesh and blood of Christ, which was why the Romans would often accuse the early Christians of being uh, cannibals because of the language that they used. But, but here's the thing, I used that same language. Uh, when we, you know, we had communion today at our church, and we use the language of uh, partaking of the flesh and blood of Christ. So we use that same language, but we don't view it as transubstantiation. So I think it is to assume um, that it was their meaning, unless they have a discourse on on what they mean by that. Um, so. I would have to, but I would just have to say I, I have to plead ignorance um, on uh, an in-depth study of what early church fathers. But, and this is one thing I, I had sent you in the chat uh, at that time too, is that I I don't establish and I, any doctrine from church fathers because. Uh, while you can look at church fathers that you know will affirm uh, different views. Basically, it comes down. It really, it always comes down to: is my church father can beat up your church father, and uh, you're going to see. And it's actually very interesting. I was I was recently really uh, reading Philip Schaff's book on um, uh, wait, his second volume on um, the Antonicene Christianity, and he brought out something which I thought was was very very interesting, and he said that one of the things that affirms the inspiration of the New Testament documents is that while we can read the New Testament and we can see consistency, we can see beauty, we can see symmetry in the revelation of the Holy Spirit, he goes, immediately after this time, you, not, not to say that the, the early church was completely disjointed, but the the consistency of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is gone from the early church fathers that had existed with the actual writers of the New Testament. And it's just a further as uh, affirmation of the um, inspiration of Scripture. Is that, that that cohesion that you see in the New Testament as you read the New Testament study, and I can use, I can cross-reference Hebrews with Peter and with Paul and with John and and I just I have this beautiful um, uh, documents which I can I can create and establish uh, the doctrines of the New Testament, the doctrines of the Christian faith from. But once you get past the apostolic era and the apostolic documents, you don't you don't see this any longer. You you see a diversity of views. You see 
men like Origin, which Origin was just wacky on some stuff. Um, and you see uh, the Shepherd of Hermas, and you see um, uh, Papias and uh, Clement of Rome, and the uh, early uh, apologists like Justin Martyr and um, Irenaeus, and and you don't see that same. You see uh, more of a diversity. Now, I would agree with that, but there are some fundamental doctrines, though, that they all seem to affirm, like, for example, justification by faith alone. A lot of people think that started with Luther. That's completely false. All of the church fathers um, prior to, like, say, 500 AD affirmed justification by faith alone. I mean, I'm not as expert on you as it is you, you, Jason, but would you agree with that statement or not? Well, I don't know if I would say all, but I would say a vast majority of them did. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think yeah. what's important is the reason why I think church history is somewhat important, I would not put it in the same level as like a Roman Catholic would, for example. Um, but it is important because I do agree with that that James White quote where if it's new, it's probably heresy. You, you ever heard him say that before? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If it's new, it ain't yeah. true. If it's... Uh... Yeah, if it's new, it's probably heresy. And that's why I like to at least... I think um, the Lutheran faith it is... You're not going to see um, a lot of... When you read early church fathers, you're not going to see a lot of um, places where we diverge, especially... I would say in the first century, I'm not first century, second century, um, maybe even into the uh, third century, where um, if you analyze those writings, just in that time period, I think Lutheranism and the positions that you can glean from their writings are not going to be that divergent. Now, of course, it depends on who you're talking about, but I'm talking about the big names. Um, the big name church fathers, like the ones you mentioned, Clement of Rome, Justin Martyr, uh, I think it's Arrhenius, those types of guys. Mm-hmm. Of course, Augustine, but he's a little later. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree. You can see um, uh, all, all the fun. You see them more developed later on. Theology is also something that, that does, uh, and I affirm that theology develops and becomes more precise uh, over time. Um, and a lot of times it's it's uh, it's not that the church doesn't believe a lot of these things, is that they're not uh, written about until they're addressing heresy. For example, often the attack is is that the Trinity was not defined until 325 A.D. at the Council of Nicaea, and that's just that's simply just false. Uh, it was a, the the issue was is that there was you know obviously uh, Arius's popularity and uh, Arianism uh, became um, popular enough that. Uh, that the church had to address it, and so that's when they, you know, definitively defined the doctrines that they had believed uh, already, all the way from the apostolic era. But uh, they, you know, affirmed them. You know, I can read Clement of Rome, and I can see aspects of the Trinity, but I don't see it clearly defined, um, and I don't see that until the Council of Nicaea. And so usually what the, sure. the thing is is that uh, heresy always pre- precedes orthodoxy. And that's uh, 
that's a very you know common um, thing that happens. Uh, a lot of the Christological errors that I talked about uh, today uh, in today's podcast, um, uh, you know, were addressed in later councils, like you know the Council of Chalcedon and uh, Ephesus. Sure. Because, yeah. Because there were later heresies. It's not that I've the church that. didn't believe that Jesus was human and fully human and fully divine, and the hypostatic union before they believed it. It just wasn't something they had to address because it wasn't as clearly defined. Sure. I got a couple more questions, but if Vincent wants to jump in, um, I don't want to monopolize. I'm just listening, man. Okay. Vincent has... Uh, uh, actually, Vincent, I've... Uh, before we uh, go to the next question, uh, I've uh, in, talked with you before. Actually, what is your... Are you Reformed Baptist or are you Presbyterian? I know you're Reformed. I, I'm not sure exactly what you're... Uh, Baptist. You're, are you Baptist, Reformed Baptist? Okay. Yeah. Are you a Presby? Uh, me? Yeah. No, 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 I'm Reformed Baptist. Good, good, good. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I, I know that, I know that. I wasn't worried about that one. I was. <laughs> no, I was actually making a joke there about my presbies, but... Uh, oh. uh, <laughs> so, uh, go, go, ahead, go ahead, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, one other question I do not at all understand about Reformed people. I really don't get this one. Um, do you affirm that you are not supposed to have any artwork of uh, Christ, either either in your house or up in the church or or that sort of thing, is that a reform? That is a reform belief, right? Well, I mean, this would even go back to the iconoclastic um, controversy that occurred. Um, I don't know when that exactly started. I think it started somewhere around the eighth and ninth centuries, and then really came to a head in the Great Schism of 1054. But this has been a controversy in the church prior to the Reformation. Um, my thing would be is, uh, so if anyone has a picture or a statue of Christ, how, how does anyone know what Christ looked like? Um, a, um, and the danger in it is that uh, man has a tendency to build many, to construct many idols in his heart. Uh, as Calvin said, <laughs> that man's heart is an idol factory, is that uh, man tends to... Uh, uh, to then construct some sort of image in his mind uh, by which he then worships. I, I don't think any of us know what Jesus looked like, so I, I don't know why we would make a picture or a statue of him. So you would affirm that? You you think, would you call it sinful, or would you just say it's just not a good idea? Um, like, like what do you mean? Like a, a statue? Of well, Jesus? let me give you an example. Okay, so at my church, for example, we have tons of, of artwork. Um, we have stained glass windows. In those stained glass windows, we have, they actually tell a story. Um, they have, the, the, the artwork includes, um, have you, you know what I'm talking about when I say stained glass windows. Yeah. You, you yeah. know, they'll have an artwork in there. So, like, for example, there's one of, of um, Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. We've got uh, another one. We've got, pictures of Jesus performing miracles, uh, artistic renderings of these, embedded in a stained glass. And then 
Um, up front, we have a massive cross above our altar, and inside the middle of the cross, this is it's a wooden cross, is a sculpted out image of Christ, um, just his face with, with kind of his hand there. Um, I, I could send you the link, and you, you could tell me at one point whether it offends you or not. But um, And then it shows him with a crown of thorns on his head. And then above that, above that humongous cross, we have additional stained glasses, which show the three the three parts of the Trinity um, massive. They're massive. I mean, like, they're 20, 30 feet high. And in them, there's uh, the dove, a hand depicting God the Father. And then in the middle... There's Jesus on the cross. Of course, his face is not, there's no features on it, but there's him hanging on the cross uh, embedded in a stained glass. And then we'll have banners up, for example, in the church sometimes that somebody made that may have an image or something like that. And then in the north, I mean, we got images of Christ up all throughout my church, and every Lutheran church I've ever been in my entire life has massive numbers of of artwork, like artwork is is an important thing. Now we don't worship it, but often the pastor and will use it as a visual during a sermon or something like that. Will point something out. Um, now Catholic churches I've seen tend to be more artistic. Um, we're we're typically our churches aren't as loaded as like a, a Roman Catholic cathedral, but there's still quite a bit of artwork up. And uh, I have never thought to myself, honestly, Jason, about worshiping the, yeah. <laughs> worshiping the artwork. I've yeah. just always thought of it as a visual reminder of, and to kind of give me a visual when I'm hearing the sermon or when I'm praying or when I'm when I'm participating in any form, you know, any part of the worship service. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I, a constant I, mental reminder, not something that I'm like looking at it and worshiping it. You know. Yeah. Does that make sense? Um. I mean, I I don't know. Maybe I'm inconsistent on this. I I I don't have a. Uh, I mean, I have a problem with with uh, graven carved images. Um. I I I would definitely be opposed to that. Uh. When it comes to you know flat type artwork. Um. You know, I don't. I don't know that I would classify that as sinful. Um, you know, that, that could probably be found within Christian liberty. Probably, um, some Reformed people would probably disagree with me on that. Um, what about a crucifix? The, you know, a cross cru up in the house with a, a with Jesus, Jesus on it. Yes, yeah, I have a big issue with that one, and the the main issue is is that he is risen. He's no longer on that cross. Um, and so, um, it's interesting that the early church um, did not have even depictions of crosses, even without Jesus on the cru uh, on a crucifix. Uh, but they didn't do it because the cross was an offensive uh, thing um, by early, you know, uh, people in, in a in a Roman uh, environment. It wasn't until later uh, that that started started to become uh, something, and I think this would go as late as like the 5th, 6th century before you started to see things uh, like that because it was considered just offensive uh, in itself. Uh, it'd be like us carrying around a uh, uh, an electric chair, <laughs> a little example of an electric chair hanging off our, a necklace. 
you know, it was a, it was a tool of execution. Um, so later on, it became uh, more of a symbol of Christianity. Uh, early Christianity used symbols like, you know, the, the sign of the, like a fish or things like that, that were uh, more symbolic of Christianity and not the cross. I believe actually Constantine, though, uh, this would have been the fourth century, early fourth century. He had, um, uh, I think, he painted crosses on shields of his soldiers and stuff. So at, at that point, it was starting to become uh, something that was done a little bit more. Um, I don't know, Vincent, you got any thoughts on that? you consider images sinful? I wouldn't. Yeah. Let me ask you this then, Jason. Do you have just an issue with the second person of the Trinity being depicted in imagery or all persons? In other words, do you have an issue with a picture of the dove or... As we've, no. and like in my church, it it's just totally, you know, it's just an un, visual, you know, of the picture of the hand representing the Father. Um, do you have a problem with just the second person or all three persons? Any image depicting any of the three persons? Well, I, I said I saw a difference between like a carved image, uh, a statue of some sort, than a picture. I, I I wouldn't really have any problem with pictures. Okay, well what happens if it was a carved image of a dove depicting the third person? Um, I, I, I don't think I would... I'm not uh, trying to be technical. No, no, no. Just... no actually I don't think I would uh, I, I would like that. I, I would probably oppose that. I wouldn't want that in my church. Okay, so let me ask you this. Would you have a problem with um, a picture or carving of a lamb like, for example, I've seen this banner, and I really like it. Um, I personally really like it, uh, where they take uh, a lamb and they show... It's an artistic thing. They'll show the side of it pierced and then blood flowing out of that and then flowing into a chalice, you know? So you get kind of the image from, uh, you know, Jesus as the lamb as depicted in Revelation, and then you get the idea of him being pierced on the cross on his side, and then, of course, the blood going into the chalice because of communion. What about an image like that? Problem, yeah. not a problem? Yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want uh, want that in my church, and that would be something, if, if it was there, I would, I would probably want it uh, removed. Um, wow, you I, I feel think, that strongly. Wow. Yeah, yeah actually, I, I would. Um, I think that um, so you're opposed to a we, lot of Christian art. What about an art, art out, Christian art outside of the church, uh, say in a museum? Uh, carved images, I, I don't think are are biblical. I think uh, if we hold to the uh, first table of the Ten Commandments uh, being God's moral law, um, it, I don't think that we should make graven images uh, for the purpose of uh, uh, spiritual uh, things. Interesting. I mean, we even see, um, for, for example, uh, even in the Old Testament. Now, um, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. I mean, we do see the uh, uh, where where I I wouldn't have a problem with with all statues. Where I would have issues with. 
statutory engraven image would be when it comes uh, when it's in reference to God Himself uh, is where I would have an issue. For example, um, in the actual temple, uh, there was cherubim that were over the ark, um, but cherubim are not objects uh, that are due worship. Um, and in the same way, for example, when uh, the children of Israel were in uh, the desert, uh, they uh, Moses made a uh, bronze serpent and put him on uh, a pole, and they looked upon it. And those who looked upon it were were um, were healed. But then later on, that thing stayed around. I think it was I'm trying to remember during the time of what king um, in the northern kingdom that they started uh, actually worshiping the thing, and uh, they had to have it destroyed. Um, and so. Where I would draw the line is uh, graven images and statues that represent God in some way. So whether that's the second, third, first, you know, it doesn't matter which person of the Trinity, uh, whether it's the Spirit or the Son or the Father, um, things that represent God as a graven image, I would have an issue with. Now, if you want to, you know, have a, you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to a memorial statue of any type of, of, of anyone. Uh, I just think uh, things that are to represent God uh, in graven form, I, I don't think is, I don't think that's biblical. Now, can I press you a little bit on this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so your issue is when, it, when a piece of artwork goes from 2D to 3D. Yeah, it's a graven image. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see how I, I find that line a little bit arbitrary? Like, for example... Well, I don't think it's arbitrary because a graven image is a three-dimensional object. <laughs> so, let me ask you this. Do you, do you have a problem with... So, you do have a problem, then, with artwork, Christian artwork. Um, you know, artwork that is, that is held up, you know, as giant artwork in, in Christianity over time. Like, for example, take the Lord's Supper. Who did that? I can't remember. Was, uh, oh, that was uh, Da Vinci. Da Vinci. Mm -hmm. So you would have an issue with that. By the way, we down oh, in our church's basement, we have a, a replica of that. <laughs> You're talking about, the, paint? You're talking about the, paint, the painting of the Lord's Supper? No, I don't know yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Da, da Vinci's painting of the Lord's Supper, we oh, have I that. that. I think that's beautiful. Okay, so so then at the cemetery that's nearby our church, well, not that close, but a couple blocks away, they have a sculpture that's basically a 3D version of that, and that's where you draw the line, 2D to 3D. Yeah, yep. I, I, like, I don't like any depth on my... I, I'm opposed to putting it into, you know, into three-dimensional space. Don't give me that extra dimension. <laughs> I'm opposed to more than two dimensions. That's interesting. <laughs> I, I told you I might not be consistent on this, but... Do you have an issue... Uh, I, I mean, I, I think, here's the thing. Do we hold to... Uh, let, let me ask you this question. Does the... Uh, in the Ten Commandments, thou, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, uh, I think for the object of worship, um, that, that represents that, do you, do you hold uh, any line at all on that? Where do you draw the line? Yes. 
So my my line would be, um, if you worship the object, if you're bestowing any worship to the object itself, that's a big problem, a huge problem with that. So I don't know. But so you, the position you that Eastern Orthodox has on like their icons, and I don't really understand the depth of their understanding of that. That is where I have a huge problem. Okay, yeah. um, you know where they're they got the relics and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and then now, you you don't see a problem with making a graven image of something that should uh, that that does deserve worship that does deserve our worship. So in other words, a graven image of of actually the Holy Spirit or of Christ or because Christ and the Holy Spirit and God the Father are deserving of our worship. You don't see that as a stumbling block to anyone uh, that uh, they might, because that statue is somewhere, that that's where they go to in order to pray to God and things like that. Uh, you don't you don't see any sort of an issue with that. Well, I I can speak for myself. If someone has okay, so for myself, I don't have that problem. Now, if somebody does do that, you know, I think, and they're saying, well, I you know, I need to be here and need to be looking at this object while I pray. I would I would need to question that. So, um, so let me ask you this: so if you have a crucifix in the front of your Lutheran church. And um, you walk in the door, uh, let's say your church is open to the public, and you walk in the door one day and you see some guy um, up at the front uh, bowing down to the crucifix and, you know, bowing down to it and uh, praying towards it. Uh, would you have a problem with that? No, because people routinely do that at my church. So, for example, we have an altar up front. Um, when we approach the altar, we um, typically bow. Now, this is in reverence, not so much to the object, but just the thought that, okay, God is present here. Not that he isn't present everywhere, but He's. we're putting our mind in a state of, of worship and reverence towards God. Um, and so we'll, we'll bow. We have a communion rail in front of our altar, for example. And so, um, for example, when we take communion, we go up there and we bow down at the rail. There's a kneeler there. Um, and so seeing people bow and pray up front, the pastor will typically do that several times during the worship service, is normal and typical. Um, the question is, is why are they, if, if they're doing because they're being reverent during worship, that's one thing, but if they're, um, but if they're up there doing, uh, if they're if they come back and you ask them about it and they say, you know, it's because I'm, you know, uh, worshiping the uh, the you know the object rather than God, that's where we'd have an issue. Yeah. See, I mean, for for me, it would be a big issue if somebody is uh, praying to that object. It's very interesting in the. In, during the time of the no, well, they're not praying to the object. They're just yeah. um, they're just up there bowing. It, it, it's a kind of posture of prayer, you know. Yeah, it's it's interesting that during the time of the Reformation, uh, when Luther uh, originally started the Reformation in Germany, <laughs> I'm trying to remember the guy's name. It's escaping me right now, but uh, his 
his basically his number one man, um, um, who th- you know he thought it was going to be the the flag bearer of the movement. Uh, um, while while he was uh, gone for a short period of time, I mean, uh, he had actually implemented reforms in the area where he had taken out um, all you know the the statues and and all the the things that uh, reflected back to Rome, and uh, he was causing problems. I think this was in Wittenberg, and uh, was causing issues. Uh, that causing it was causing some rioting and, and some unrest. And when Luther came back, um, he restored all of it, and then slowly started to implement reforms to to get rid of um, some of those things. But he never got to the point of actually then removing the statues and stuff before he died. Now it's you know. It's possible that he may have moved on towards that at some point. Uh, his main thing is he didn't want to create unrest. He wanted changed hearts and not outward uh, obedience. He wanted uh, internal heartfelt obedience to God. And so it wasn't necessarily that he thought it was um, it was they were good, uh, but uh, he wanted people to get rid of those things um, from their own desire and not from. But uh, then the Lutheran Church, you know, post uh, Luther's death, uh, just continued to to use uh, use those things. Whereas other Reformed churches uh, eliminated them all, uh, Zwingli, Calvin. Um, now let me ask you this: Knox. Do you have a problem with people, uh, actors playing the part of, like, take for example, the movie The Passion of the Christ? Did you have an issue? With actors playing the role of Christ, or or anything like that. Um, no, I don't think I would have an issue with that. Wow. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that they were. I mean, it's not something that's used in worship. I mean, they're not. They're not. Uh, okay, so then. Object of worship. So then, if. Okay, so let me go back to this then. If you see Christian art in a museum, or say, for example, in a cemetery, do you have a problem with art, either 3D or 2D, sculpture, carving, whatever, or, or just a flat painting? Do you have a problem of, with it in that context? Um, only in the sanctuary? Well, I, like I said, I don't. I wouldn't support any images, uh, not... not uh, of of Christ or any part of the Godhead, uh, doesn't matter where it's at. So it's just an image, not so you wouldn't consider an actor an image. Mm, it has he's, death. He's not, a, he's not a graven image, no. But he's pretending to be something he isn't, right? Yeah, but he's he's not a carved image, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it says. That's a graven image. Sorry. <laughs> so definitely, you know, at one point I was going to tell you, go to a Lutheran church just to check it out, just so you can get the idea of, of what a liturgy is like and stuff, but now well, I'm thinking you might not now, like it. Now, now, talk, <laughs> now, now talking about, um, I mean, you were talking about the doctrine of the Lord's Supper with the early um, church. Uh, the early church, uh, actually, the the church... Uh, up until, I mean, th- this caused a big problem. Uh, I mean, there was a, there was a, it's, it's very interesting. Up until 1054 A.D., 
there was no graven images at all in the church. In fact, the East and West Church split in 1054, the Great Schism, because the Eastern Church uh, was using uh, flat two-dimensional icons, uh, and the Western Church was opposed to it. And so graven images were not used in worship at all for a thousand years uh, of the church. Yeah, yeah, that that could very well be. So I mean, if uh, no, I mean that's that is the that's the situation. I mean that that's actually yeah. it's very interesting. The Western Church actually divided from the Eastern Church primarily over this issue, uh, the Great Schism of 1054. Uh, over their use of two-dimensional icon, you know, icons. Uh, what about And then what's that? Philokoi. Is that? I can't. I can never say it. Um, refresh my. That sounds familiar. It has to do whether the spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son or just the Father. Yeah. Uh, what? What? When was that addressed? That was. That was in the Great Schism. Oh, okay. Was that that was one of the issues there too? In the yeah, the uh, Roman Catholics uh, added the Holy Spirit, or what was it? They had a disagreement about the Nicene Creed, just that one part. Then yeah, the Roman Catholic Church now. kind of wanted the papacy. Yeah, that's ringing a bell now. Um, I don't remember the details on that. Uh, so that that was one of the uh, I don't was that one of the main things though I thought the main thing was the icon issue. Well, the the thing about the icons I thought that was settled in around the 800s because oh, I was I was watch uh, I was listening to something because you know that's why I was hesitant to say anything about uh, what you meant by art I thought you were talking about paintings because I you know I'm not strolling in with a statue but uh. <laughs> The, because at the the second count, and by the way, by no means do I know anything about church history, so take everything I say with a grain of salt. But uh, when it came to the second council in Nicaea, that's where they were dealing with idols, and because of the uh, rebellion, well, not the rebellion, but the very issues that it was causing, they said, yeah, icons are allowed, and uh, later they were having another problem where people were. Uh, you know, they were going and destroy. I forget what they were called, but I was listening to an audio on a uh, on Eastern Orthodoxy because you know I've been you know the YouTube community. It's very weird. Yeah. And uh, so I, I was because uh, it was about their mysticism because you know they pray to the, the, these icons. Yes, they do. Yeah. Um. Yeah, you know what? I think you're right. It, it is it is earlier. For some reason, I was thinking that was the one of the major things of the schism. But no, you know what? I don't think it was. It was a little bit earlier. It looks like it was around the ninth century, where uh, the use of icons was forbidden in the seventh ecumenical council at Nicaea in 815. Um, ended with the death of. I was thinking it was later. I thought it was still an issue in 1054, but maybe it wasn't. Because that's all I know about the Great Schism, because it was about, you know, Roman Catholics didn't want to have to constantly go to the eastern part of the kingdom and uh, ask them for the permission. 
Yeah, I think uh, I think it was a little bit earlier. It was a century or two earlier. Eighth and ninth century is where um, the you should download. The, I, I think you should download the RTS app, the Foreign Theological Seminary app. It has a bunch of free audios on church history. I think you'd like. <laughs> Um, I just went through Robert Godfrey's series on church history that's available through Legoneer. Um, that's a pretty good one. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, the icon class. At, the the first one uh, looks like it was eighth century. Um, but the interesting thing was the second icon class period, eight fourteen to eighteen forty two. Um, the interesting thing was is while the Western uh, Church um, opposed uh, iconoclasm or the use of icons, they, uh, the Eastern Church never adopted uh, images. <coughs> but then one of the reasons for the split, or at least the, the disjunction between the two churches, uh, was then later completely abandoned by the Western Church when they started using images, actual graven images, not just paintings. But it was a little bit later, so I mean, I would still my question would still stand to you, Andrew, is that it's a much later development in the church, though. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, it definitely is. Well, looking at Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, you see a lot of evolving patterns. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, guys, I've I've been busy because. Uh, I'm trying to get in contact with a friend because I bought all these uh, Greg Bonson audios. And uh, so I spent like, you know, 136 bucks to buy all his philosophy courses. <laughs> okay. And, and uh, I can't get to it because you need a desktop to, or a laptop, you know, to get download them. Yeah. I'm just sitting here with all these. I have the email where you just click it and download it, and I, I have. I'm, I'm trying to get my friend to do it, but he's at the Reason Rally, <laughs> and. Uh, Did you get it from a Covenant Media Foundation? Because I've bought some of his lectures off there before. Yes. That's where you got it at. Oh, I'm going to. Uh, I, I'm going to play them for free over Google Hangout so people can listen to them. Not live. Not we're going to record it. Not copyright. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've actually I bought uh, I bought them individually. I never bought the entire, but I I would I bought uh, I've got quite a few of the MP3s out of my Dropbox uh, that I got from Covenant Media Foundation of Bonson. Uh, some of those are just phenomenal. Yeah, and then you then you go to his hermeneutics, and he's trying to prove theonomy. Yeah. Well, that's a separate issue, but. <laughs> I actually listened to one of his where he uh, where he did that. Um, I, I was here's I was, a question for you, Jason. Yeah. I've never even heard of theonomy until like a year ago. Like it is so like in the Lutheran Church, nobody ever talks about theonomy. Like it, it, it's, it's like it's not it's just not even anybody's radar screen. How many people in reform circles are into theonomy? It seems it's like one of these things that's um, 
Like, are there a bunch of theonomists at your church, for example? No, no, there's none. <laughs> so it's kind of like it, their own little sect. Yeah, they're a very small group, um, and, and they're and they're all Presbyterians. Well, not all of them. Jeff there was a joke. Reformed there was a joke. Baptist. Yeah, most of them yeah, are Presbyterians, though. Yep, I have a friend who, obviously Presbyterian, that's a theonomist. One, only one, so. I thought it was an interesting question. Did you ever listen to J.D. Hall's debate with Joel McDermott on theonomy? Me or Andrew? I, I heard uh, portions. But, yeah. Uh, did, you, did you ever, uh, Vincent, ever hear I was that? I, I was going to watch it, but then I something happened where I got busy. I, if I remember right, I don't know if it was J.D. Hall that did this, but somebody did this. Is he he pitted the Reformed Baptist theonomist against the Presbyterian theonomist because if you fully implement theonomy, uh, Reformed Baptists would probably be imprisoned because we would not hold we wouldn't baptize our infants and theonomy would implement that as a regulation of the state. Wow. So that pits the Reformed Baptist theonomists against the <laughs> the Reformed or the, the Presbyterian theonomists. It's so, an interesting problem for them. So are, are they like trying to fight it out in politics to see which one's going? Yeah, to... I guess I guess when theonomy to, you know becomes the the major uh, political uh, movement and they get you know they get they can become in power. I guess they're going to have to figure it out at that point. Probably be imprisoning each other. Let's go my post mills. Yeah. Well, or stoning. They, they probably wouldn't imprison. They'd probably stone you. Well, you know, some people have a tough days. <laughs> it was a rocky start. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Get uh, If you get uh, reformed, uh, or if you get a theonomous Presbyterian and a Baptist in the same room, uh, just throw that, like, grenade in between them and then just run for it and just watch. Yeah. Hey Jason, let me ask you this. Have you heard any more anecdotes or um interesting things that happened at the Reason Rally worth worth talking about? Um, um no, I mean I, I really haven't. I've just heard uh, uh what Tim and Les or Len, sorry, uh, were talking about and that's that's all I, I know about it. Yeah, that's. Did you hear anything else, Vincent? Anything interesting or? Uh, no, I heard it was actually quite a small turnout. Yeah, that's that's what I heard too. Um, what smaller than they were hoping for? I'm actually uh, hoping to hear the audio. I saw a picture of Lawrence Krauss talking to Seiton Bergenkate. I think that would be a really interesting conversation to hear. That's news to me. I would yeah. love to talk to Lawrence Cross. Yeah. I wonder if they talked about nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a picture of Cy uh, talking to Lawrence Krauss, and I think uh, they talked for a little while, so there was like cameras around him. So. Well, Lawrence Krauss likes to talk about nothing a lot. Yeah. <laughs> And literally. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. It's a theoretical nothing. Yeah. <clears throat> it's actually quite a lot of... It's an equivocation. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, because... Well, like Craig points out, he's talking about a quantum vacuum. By the way, I'm not a scientist. Just saying. But, uh... Which isn't really nothing. This is actually something. Like... Yeah. Uh, no, nobody agrees with Lawrence. Lawrence well, is just out there, just wants to talk about nothing. Well, I think uh, Andy could fill in on this, but doesn't... I mean, in physics, we, we, ca we have vacuum energy. You have the energy of uh, empty space. Space itself has yes. measurable energy. So, what do you... Okay, so you're talking... Space is something, in, in a sense, right? Um, so... Uh, when you're talking, what he's talking, when you're talking about like a quantum vacuum, what you're typically talking about is, um, so part of the uncertainty principle says that something can, you can create so, something can can be made right out of the quantum vacuum as long as it doesn't last very long. So, for example, um, you can create Jupiter, and it can go away. It can pop into existence and go away as long as it doesn't last very long. And when you have those uh, what are known as quantum fluctuations, which theoretically could be happening all the time, um, that creates a, uh, uh, a hole in the sea uh, uh, of energy that needs to be eventually filled. Am I making? I hope I'm making sense. This is very technical. <laughs> so when you talk about a quantum vacuum, what you're talking about is places where the the uncertainty principle takes over. You have something that pops into to existence for just a, when I say fractions of a second, I mean like I can't exaggerate how how small that would be, and then pop back out of existence. Um, does that make sense? You know what, Andy? Two plus two equals five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is something in theoretical physics called a quantum vacuum, and that's what it, it's. It's like this reservoir of of energy that, when things ha when there's a quantum fluctuation, you you need to take something out of the universe um, in order to make sure that mass and energy are conserved. And so they invented this thing called the quantum vacuum. So when he's talking about something um, popping out, like like for example, in in an well, electrical quantum uh, electrical quantum physics uh, electrodynamics, you can have, for example, a a photon that's moving, um, and a photon can split at any moment. Due to quantum fluctuations, in be to, into a uh, an electron and a positron. Um, am I make? Have you guys heard of this before? I don't want to bore you. <laughs> no, no, I I accidentally kicked the uh, quantum mechanics, or or did uh, no, no, Jason did. Jason started this. Oh, it's my fault now, huh? Yeah, yeah, I just recall. <laughs> but anyway, you can, you can have a positron and an electron that pop out. 
of, of a photon because of mass energy conservation, right? So they can create and then they can split and come back together and annihilate each other. Yeah, and this can happen very moon. quickly. Yeah. But if this happens near the event horizon of a black hole, this is where something interesting happens because if you have a photon traveling right near the um, right near the event horizon of a black hole, when you that split happens, one of the two will get pulled into the black hole and the other one will not. And so then you'll have matter that um, persists after the quantum fluctuation. Does that make sense? Do you know what an event horizon is? You speak no. to me? <laughs> yeah. An event horizon is the point uh, in space near a black hole where anything on one side of it will get sucked into the black hole and anything on the other side of it will not. So if you have a photon traveling and it gets really close, like right on the border of the event horizon, and it splits, you can have either the positron or the electron get pulled into the black hole and the other piece of matter not get pulled in. So I don't know how Lawrence Krauss develops all this into the, his theory of nothing and, uh, and showing that something be created out of nothing, but that's the general idea behind matter creation uh, if that, if you could follow me there. All I have to say is I'm happy that. Oh, go ahead, Jason. Yeah, the issue that he still has though is, is that whether or not this still follows uniform laws of nature, and you can't. And that's not. That's uh, not, or not nothing. That's a double negative. But um, that is isn't nothing, <laughs> and uh, still double negative. But. Um, <clears throat> So it, it still doesn't work. No, I, I think it equivocates on the word nothing. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I, I'm just describing um, one general idea behind matter creation. Now, uh, um, I think he's... I haven't read his... Have you read his stuff pretty in-depth, Jason? I haven't really because no, I, I know I, it's kind of, kind I am, of crap, so I just stay away from it. The, the only thing... I mean, I... Uh, Lawrence, I've only seen him debate a few people. I've never read a, any of his work. When it comes to physicists that I've read, I've read uh, uh, Susskind um, and Lee Smolin, and uh, those are some of the guys that I've read. But uh, I've never read anything by Krauss. Yeah, I, I never even heard of him until he started debating Christians, truthfully. I, I don't know if he's really much of a... I could be wrong. I don't know if he's really... Contributed much to the this to physics in general. Um, wait, wait, wait! You know, debating you you consider that debating, not just over talking. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, whatever you want to call it, you know, like he he fits into that general category of me of celebrity scientist. Um, yeah, these yeah. guys are just trying to make a lot of money. I think I think they have a massive profit motive, like him and Bill Nye, the science guy, and. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Brian Greene, all these dudes are like Carl Sagan wannabes who just want to make a ton of money off off selling books and, and massive speaking fees and that sort of thing. Yeah, my atheist career never took off. <laughs> What's that? Say the... <laughs> okay, I get it. Okay. Living the double life. As soon as I leave here, I'm already writing. You know, I... Christopher Hitchens, ghostwriter. Somebody <laughs> well, had to be that clever. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, n name one thing in the scientific literature that con contribution that Bill Nye, the science guy, has made. <laughs> I mean, come oh, on, he's, I, he's not a serious scientist. Not even many seasons of his show. He's educated children that have helped <laughs> mankind. It was, it was terrible. It was, no, nobody takes him seriously, but it makes you feel better. He's even a worse debater. I mean, the Ken Ham debate was so terrible. Well, I, I wish Ken Ham would have really... I mean, Ken Ham could have taken him to task more than what he did. <coughs> I wish he would have um, went uh, more presuppositional on him than what he did. Well, what was the point of the debate again? Just whether young earth creationism was... A scientific model, or, yeah, I think that's true. So he didn't. It wasn't really the goal to like go all well. How do you account for the uniformity of nature? Yeah. Even like even the way that relates is actually there's a lot of things he could have done which I would have been happy with. I've been like, oh, no, the problem with your belief is it makes science impossible. Well, he did actually ask him. He asked the question, but since it wasn't. If I recall, didn't he ask him about uniformity of nature? He just asked yeah. the question. But Nye, I don't think he even understood what he was asking. Honestly, I don't think he even understood what he was asking. And it was just passed over because there wasn't a back-and-forth cross-examination. It, uh, it was just a question that, that Ham brought up. But You know what's interesting, too, about these celebrity scientists, real quick, is that they all are pushing a left-wing liberal agenda and it's hard for me to figure out where the, the political agenda starts and stops with respect to their scientific positions they're they're so intertwined you know Andrew Rappaport was talking about that like you know at the rally there seems to be it's not so much about atheism as it is about um, a left-wing political agenda um, the correct term is sophist yeah, yeah, and and it's like even these celebrity scientists, you, you check and and they're like always trying to make headlines or get into the media about some some political issue that they're taking a position on, and it's always a, a you know kind of on the it's always on the political left, and it's like it's weird that they even it's <laughs> I don't get it because if you're a scientist, what the heck does politics? It. And these are not even science policy questions. These are just general uh, political questions about, you know, the size of government and that sort of thing, you know. Well, I don't know I if you guys have noticed that, but it, 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 the two are so inextricably tied together, I don't understand where one stops and the other one ends, you know. Well, the, I think the reason rally is more about the LGBT issue than it is about, uh, than it is about anything else. And, uh, Science is just like a glow word. Not really serious much. What do you mean when you say glow word? Oh, to make your position look bright and special. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. So, and then what you're saying is, is that these guys get a bunch of letters after their name and that gives them credibility to speak on all sorts of issues which they have possibly no expertise on. Like, you know, what does having a, a PhD in uh, high-energy physics have to do with your position on, uh, on the size of uh, 
the amount of government spending on this or that, you know. What does Lawrence Krauss have any business debating the existence of God? <laughs> yeah. That's about as bad as uh, Bonson when he b debated Stein. I mean, his expertise was on the uh, maturation of what, uh, ch Japanese quail? Yes. <laughs> oh, that was bad. Yeah. <laughs> that was classic. <laughs> like, why, I don't even understand why Stein would really... Well, yeah, he's a PhD why? philosopher. Let's just give it a go. Yeah, why would I even show up to that debate? <laughs> I mean, he lost before he ever showed up. I mean, it was... The cosmological argument sucks, and all these other arguments suck, and, uh, you know, it sounds ontological argument. And he went to every other argument, and even his criticisms were pretty weak of those arguments. But uh, uh, I would agree with that. I would agree that his, cri his criticisms were very weak. Uh, basically, his cr criticism of the ontological argument, if I remember right, was, uh, it's, it's kind of crazy. Oh, I, 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 if that was it, then it's... That, that was about that's it. Lovely. Yeah. I would love to see him talk to Alvin Plantinga. <laughs> you know, what's interesting, too, I find about a lot of these... You, you know, just take the list of major speakers they had at the Reason Rally. Um, they, they're utterly dismissive of all of the theological scholarship that has existed over thou literally thousands of years. I mean, this stuff way predates, uh, you know, even Newton or something like that. And they just whitewash it, and then they'll act like they'll throw some objection out there that's been studied and talked about, and tons of ink has been spilled, but they absolutely do not care to find out what any theologian you know, over a 2,000-year period of time had to say about the issue, you know? No, they, like, it, it, it's just amazing to me how they're so dismissive of such a massive body of knowledge, you know? That, that, that body of knowledge is humongous, you know? Well, they, they uh, just but, think, yeah, the, but Christians are ignorant buffoons from the Bronze Age. So wh who would ever have thought that we would actually think out our theology and you know systematize it and actually have thought these things through. They just can't even imagine that we would do that. So why, why even, you know, spend an iota of time actually even looking at it? Wait, wait, wait. Let me ask this question. Are you Christians? Well, you just said you think. What was that? Uh, and, then, and then you just, like, go ahead. You broke up there. I didn't catch that. Which part? You, it was like use, and then the, you kind of broke up. Oh, yeah, okay. It was like, oh, well, you're Christians, and, and you think? Uh, that's, that's that's a new trick they taught you. But uh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm not sure what your, what your point was, but... Oh, uh, the, the snarkiness of the atheist position. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was just, oh, well, you're Christians, and you think? Yeah, no, they just dismiss it outright. They can't even imagine that we've thought our position through. I don't believe it. Especially Calvinists. They're absurd. They're, they are wicked, <laughs> you know, evil, uh, predestined you to hell for no reason. 
Tiny yeah. God. That monster. Yeah, uh, Andrew's wor- Andrew's working out how to deal with us Calvinists. So, um, where were you? We had Jason. Where were you? We had Leighton Flowers join our little hangout group. Really? Yeah. Recently? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, honestly, you know, <laughs> his arguments are so old and have been refuted so often. I'm actually just bored by him. It's it's like. Really? I mean, he he keeps using the the. There's no uh, with judicial hardening. He refuses to accept our distinctions, even though I I don't know how he can't say that they're not clear. Uh, but yet he doesn't. You know, keeps on going. It's been refuted over and over. You know, it seems like there's some sort of emotional attachment. I I haven't watched all his debates. I saw one of them with with uh, the James White one, and I saw him talk to Matt Slick, and, and it feels like he's gotten an emotional attachment to his position. Um, that uh, And he tries to use a lot of theological language to defend it, but I think if you really pushed him, I really wonder how... Uh, you know, if, at the root of it, he just he can't bring himself... Um, to believe some of these positions because they emotionally don't feel good. You know what I mean? Well, I, uh, my, my argument would be is that's almost all Arminians. Go ahead. Oh, me? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, where'd you go? There, is there another hangout? Yeah, there's another hangout. I left a previous hangout to come join this one. Uh, ironically, just to mention this, I'll plug in a friend there. Uh, Tyler Vela is in the other hangout, and he's oh. uh, de- uh, debating with uh, Lighten, which, you know, uh, I like the way he explains his exegesis, the Gordian knot, which is just too accurate. Uh is With he... Leighton, you'll find a lot of false analogies that you're going to have to cut through very quickly because if you leave them up, he'll act like they're theological points. Yeah. Very weird. Oh, and I'm writing an article on there. On a... Does anybody here know Christian Anarchist? I've heard of the name. I'm not. I don't. He's not. Uh, not he wrote a blog article saying intelligent design isn't scientific, and I want to correct that and attack his position, which is more theistic evolutionary. I think I've seen him on Google Plus. Nice guy. What's his central thesis? Hmm? What's his central thesis? What? Why isn't it scientific? Very, uh, something for the sort of, well, you see, there's other possible explanations. That's what I gathered. Maybe I'm reading it wrong. Well, typically, uh, what I al- almost always see when somebody says that. 
um, biblical creation is not scientific. It's simply because they assume naturalism is scientific. They don't prove it. They just they just assume naturalism isn't scientific. So because your view isn't naturalistic, therefore it's not scientific. Well, that's just that's irrelevant. I think one of the most concerning questions, the, the, it's not really to refute him so much, but it's rather to give a better, easy-to-understand grasp of how Christians should view science. I mean, I'm going to quote or at least steal some theses from, like, I don't know if you any, any uh, either of you know about uh, Thomas Kuhn. Sure. No, I haven't heard of him. All right. Even though I don't completely agree with his idea that science reduces to relativism, but uh, he points out certain paradigms come up through the his uh, the uh, the history of scientific revolution is the book I think, and uh, he goes through and points out how you know you'd have a older generation and then a younger generation would come up and challenge what the older generation and that's how paradigms got started not because of anything really objective and uh, he ultimately concludes that there's no way to actually compare one paradigm with another paradigm now I don't think that's true I think there is a way but uh, that's that's for the article I'm not going to give you all the meat here so basically there's a uh, they're just social constructs just of that time period. Right, they catch on like a like a bad disease, like a or or kind of like a music phase, like the terrible one we're in. Yeah, we prefer. Yeah, we we prefer pop today. So, you know, we used to like more classic rock, but so there's no way to compare those. They're just subjective paradigms. Now, does does he also assert though that there are discoveries made? that would facilitate a paradigm shift. Now, those that paradigm shift usually doesn't happen immediately, right? But there's a discovery then, and then it takes time for the, the shift to happen. Right? Right. That's how I You know, um, for example, uh, um, Einstein with uh, the theory of relativity wasn't immediately accepted, took time, and then eventually um, the, the paradigm shift happened. So would he actually claim things like that don't have any objectivity to them? They were just simply became popular? What he's going to say is, and he, it's that these things that we find can still be interpreted by the old system's presuppositions. So, like, he would say, like, Newtonian yeah. physics can still describe it. So if you just use Newton's presuppositions, you're still fine. Just yeah, you could take Newtonian presuppositions and uh, interpret all of the, like, space-time type of uh, phenomena Actually, you can't though. Uh, yeah, it, up up until so, for example, when Einstein theorized about relativity, for example, he had no, uh, he had limited experimental data to prove it. It was only later after he posited it, and then they started looking for it that they found it. Um, so, in that intermediate point between the 
the postulated new system or the new theory and the old theory, there might be some presuppositions there, but then it takes time for experimental evidence to catch up. Would, would you agree with that? Or Sure. Yeah, I mean, like, Newtonian physics doesn't work when you're approaching the speed of light with, like, special relativity. It doesn't work anymore. So I don't think... <laughs> That's not a. That's not based upon a paradigm shift. That's objective testing. Yeah, and in every paradigm, you have a dominant view of a, a, a scientific consensus, if you will, that the vast majority of scientists believe um, describes the state of affairs. And then you usually have to have a few oddballs that challenge that main view. And uh, often, the oddballs who challenge the main view are wrong. Um, and then once in a while, they're right, and that's where you start to see the paradigm shift happen. It, it, would that be a correct understanding of it? It can lead into that. Is, is, Th is Thomas Cook, is he a, a, a science philosopher, or what, what's his, uh, yeah. his training? It's, it's Kuhn. It's K-U-H-N. Okay, K-U-H-N. Uh. <coughs> so does he not, uh, does he lack an understanding of some of the objective nature to some of scientific discoveries, or does he, is, is there an issue there? With Thomas Kuhn's view, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a big problem to say that Einstein's theories of relativity are simply because of a social paradigm shift and not because of objective data that's proven it. I mean, I just don't... I, I don't... Yeah, I'm not sure I, I totally... Okay, my understanding of it, and I could be wrong, I have not read Thomas Kuhn thoroughly by any means, is that what, what he describes is how these big consensus viewpoints build up. So, um, and... So go go to like the late 1800s or something. The consensus view was Newtonian mechanics were the, was the correct understanding of, of the universe, right? And that was a massive, the vast majority of scientists believe that, practically all. And then a few break off and start to challenge that consensus. Um, so what he's describing as a paradigm is really just a, the way I understood it is a consensus viewpoint about a particular theory or describing the state of affairs. So you could argue that, for example, in paleontology, uh, you know, macroevolution is the prevailing paradigm in in that field of study. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I I would say that that within some of those fields, especially evolutionary fields, I would agree that a lot of it, he's probably right on with with the paradigm shifts. I think there's a difference when you actually, because I, I just don't view that as real, you know, actual observable science. That's more of a philosophy. So those can change and shift when it comes to scientific philosophies, which that's what naturalism is. It's not a it's not something that's objectively provable, which is really what macroevolution is, just a 
naturalistic philosophy. It's not you can't compare it to like the theory of relativity or Newtonian physics. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Do you guys see a difference between uh, between the two? Well, I do, but Einsteinian and Newtonian physics, yeah. I, I do agree. Yeah, I, I believe that, again, I'm not affirming Thomas Kuhn's view. Yeah, well, you're critiquing it. But I think that's where he kind of collapses. He's not recognizing the difference between a, a philosophical... Well, I think there is something to it, uh, especially with uh, not in the sense of operational science, but yeah. uh, more on the historical sciences. Yeah, I would I agree with that. That's a good distinction there, yeah. And, and that's what I was trying to use as a point in the article. So when it comes to the origins and debates like that, it's really going to be mainly presuppositions which we bring to the table in order to... You, you mentioned naturalism as one of the schools of thought. We, we bring that to the table. Are we going to come out with a, a young Earth creation view? No, you can't. Your presupposition excludes it from being even viable. Exactly, and that's what I, I, I was going to draw out. Uh, and then I was going to bring out what should we base scientific theories off of. Well, we typically base them off of observable data if it's available. Now, sometimes you have to have a leap, um, like Einstein's leap and so forth. You, you know, the, the theory will precede the experimental data. They'll make a prediction. But then you've got to have experimental data to back it up one way or another. Well, with science... I would hold to one of the uh, views. You can't really, I'm going to say this, you're probably familiar with this, but to I'm not going to say science can tell us, or induction can tell us the way the world actually is in the sense that, uh, in an absolute deductive sense, because if I do, I'd be committing a fallacy, so I'm going to advocate it. idea can give us possibilities or veracity. Uh, can you expound a little bit more on your your thing there that um, uh, I was uh, typing here? It was uh, you, you said something about uh, um, induction, and you were uh, expound a little bit more on what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I was uh, uh, I was bringing up a fallacy called asserting the consequent, mm -hmm. and yeah. that's why I'm not going to say induction absolutely proves that. This is the conclusion we have to drop on the table. You can't, in any other way, try to explain the data. What What is your view that the scientific method is actually the fallacy of affirming the consequent? Hmm? What is your view that the scientific method in itself is actually the fallacy of affirming the consequent? 
In other words, I construct a theory, and if uh, the conclusion that I predict comes true, therefore the antecedent is true. Yeah, you understand what I'm saying with affirming? No, no, I cut out and I completely missed everything you said. Uh, what is your view on that the scientific method itself is committing the fallacy of affirming the consequent? Oh, I, I just, I, I don't look at it as the Francis Bacon way of doing it. I think that's a very naive way of looking at the scientific method. Yeah. Uh, to where I do admit the freedom of alter, alternate po uh, explanations of data that's why here example uh, there there are multiple interpretations of quantum physics right now I don't know which one uh, Andy takes but someone like uh, I know somebody who takes it to advocate objective idealism mm -hmm. so one one man takes the idea uh, the the uh, uncertainty principle and things like that, and the uh, what is it, uh, Cochin Bell's uh, spec spectrum spectro theorem, and uh, oh well, you know, the observed there's there's no such thing as the objective world. He takes that interpretation. Then there's somebody who holds the Bohemian mechanics. Yeah, <clears throat> I. <clears throat> Real quick, I can comment on the idea of, you know, when it comes to quantum mechanics and, and what's going on, really you have the math, and that's that's kind of it. And what ends up happening is, there's actually a thread going on about this in uh, BWTN uh, earlier today, because I guess somebody at the Reasonable Rally challenged someone on this topic. I don't know if you saw that, Jason, but... Yeah, I think yeah. the the, know, the thing is is yeah, yeah the, the thing is is that you, you um when quantum mechanics you're really talking about a mathematical system that describes some experiments and what throws people off is what do you what is happening pre measurement um what what's the phenomena that's happening pre measurement and all we can say is that we have a mathematical description of what happens pre-measurement, and that is that we have a probability distribution that pops out of, an, of a partial differential equation. And I know that sounds technical, and it's hard to break that down for the layman, but that's really all we have. And what you run into problems and mistakes when you try to, in, try to force some interpretation on what that thing means. What it means is, is that the math tells us that that's what's happening, and, and the math works to describe the physical phenomenon after we measure it. It's really just that simple. Um, and when you measure it a whole bunch of times, you get the same distribution that we predict you would get pre-measurement, if that makes any sense. I, I, honestly, I think that the fallacy that is committed by saying that quantum mechanics uh, violates the law of non-contradiction and so therefore contradictions can be true 
is the same fallacy committed by people that said, well, Einstein said, uh, had the theory of general relativity, <laughs> therefore morality is relative. I mean, I think it's almost just as big of a leap. Yeah, it, it kind so, of is. Um, there's some... You run into the... It's weird because you, you have to understand the nature of what a measurement does and how it influences what you're measuring. And uh, quantum mechanics describes that process, that measurement process. Therefore, what's happening pre-measurement it's it's all we can know about it is is a probability distribution. If that makes any sense, and people really don't like that because they work in a very Newtonian world in terms of their everyday life because that's what length scale we operate at. But what's happening at the lower level, you know, the, the small length scales, something different happens because of the measurement. So it, it's really hard to explain to someone who, who hasn't worked through the math to see that. It's really a highly mathematical thing. Hey Jason, I'm going to get going here. I'm I'm getting tired. Yeah, actually, I'm I, I gotta I gotta get going. I gotta get up early. For, <laughs> for, uh, it was so. a really good discussion, and uh, maybe at some point, you know, if they they cancel again, we could you'd consider doing it again. I hope you would. So. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. thanks. Uh, thanks both of you for uh, for jumping in tonight. Um, I'm going to uh, to bail. So. Um, alrighty. I'll talk to you later. We'll catch well, you guys later. I, I thank you for allowing me to join. And uh, this this was an interesting conversation. And when I finish the article, I'll, I'll send it to you, uh, Jason. And, and Andy, I'll send you a, a video where someone advocates that, the, that there's no objective reality by okay, using cool. one Cool. Um, by the way, it's not my position. But by the way, where do you blog at? Oh, the the Council of Google Plus has a blog. Okay, I've been there before. Okay, is that where yeah. you're blogging at? Oh yeah. Okay. Okay, yeah. I will I'm, check it I'm out. I'm one of the heretic bloggers on there. Okay. All right, guys. Catch you guys See later. Ya. God bless. Bye. God bless. Yeah. Bye.